Gina, I hope you've had a good week. It has been uh, quite the week. It has been quite the week, but it's good to be here. I am so excited for Lada to join us tonight. She's just going to be amazing. She's probably listening and getting nervous, and there is no reason to be nervous. We are just a bunch of normal people who like to uh, talk about Ukraine a lot and talk about everything regarding Ukraine and not uh, hiding any of the bits that are sometimes more difficult to talk about. Go ahead, Gina. I was going to say, while we're waiting for Lada to uh, get situated here, do we want to maybe offer folks some resources uh, before we begin on this topic? We've been pointing them to some resources that if they find themselves stressed or overwhelmed, as this material can sometimes do to people, it is difficult to listen to. Um, It can make you sad. It can make you incredibly angry. And there's help if you feel that it's a little too much for you. So do you want me to list those now? I think that would be perfect. Lada is connecting right now, and I will change the title and we'll be good to go. So thank you, Gina. Okay, sure. While we're waiting, uh, as Prince and I were saying, it can be very difficult talking about genocide. So if you find that it's too overwhelming, it's, it's okay to take a break. It's okay to step away. Uh, and also there are resources uh, for dealing with this trauma. Of course, if you're in immediate distress, you can always call in the United States 911 or your nation's emergency number or call a friend, a loved one, let someone know that you need some help. Again, in the United States, the National Suicide Hotline is 988. You can call or chat. And since some of the material that we discussed tonight may refer to incidents of sexual assault, which is a part of Russia's genocidal strategy and of other genocides, The National Sexual Assault Hotline, if you are triggered by that discussion, you can call or chat 1-800-656-4673. For our Canadian listeners, mentalhealthfoundation.ca has links to HOPE, the number four, Ukraine, and you can access that in English, Ukrainian, Russian, and French by texting HOPE for Ukraine in English to 393939 in Ukrainian, Texting Ukraina to 855-450-2266. You can text the Russian spelling of Ukraine to that same number. And you can text in French, Espoir, for the number for Ukraine, to that same number. And I apologize to our French speakers for my dreadful pronunciation there. So with that said, back to you, Prince. Sorry, I was in the middle. I was still changing the... um... I was uh, still changing the title, and uh, I still don't think I got it the way I wanted it, but that's okay. Um, So, Lana, welcome. Is your microphone working? Just making sure. I I think so. Good good evening to you. Good good morning to you. Thank Uh, you for getting up and joining us so early. Um, So, yeah. uh, Nancy's getting situated still, and Gina, thank you so much for um, for giving that that uh, little little talk and uh, putting out some resources for people. We know this can be a difficult subject to speak about, and uh, we uh, we want you to know that it's okay to to take a break from listening if you need to, because um, you know even we need to take a break sometimes uh, from uh, <laughs> reading reports and things like that because it does get intense. So let me see if Nancy is back. Um, Yes, I am, Prince. Thank you. All right. Do you want to do a formal introduction? Oh, Gina's got her hand up already. 
I'm so sorry. I just wanted to say, um, just to give you an idea of how difficult, and Lada can speak to this much more directly, but of how difficult it can be to talk about genocide, the doctoral program that I'm looking to enter at, at Gratz College in the next few years, the first course you have to take, it's on genocide studies that the doctoral program is uh, that covers, um, but the first course you have to take is one that kind of prepares you to deal with genocide studies. Can you deal with the trauma? Can you practice self-care? Can you know when to step away? So just, I hope that helps some folks in the audience if they find themselves a little overwhelmed, because I know this isn't the only session that you're immersing yourself in. If you're in Maria Report, you're probably accessing a lot of information about Ukraine in this space and in other sources, because it's a very dedicated group we have here. So just to give you some context there, even the scholars have to make sure they know how to take care of themselves. 100% is somebody I like to know says. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Nancy. Or did I catch her off guard? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Since uh, I had I had to rebuild a system yesterday, I don't have the um, Lana's bio directly in front of me. Ah, here we go. Now I've got it. And, uh, and, and Lada, I apologize. One of my goals had been to make certain that I listened to one of your interviews so that I didn't butcher the pronunciation of your last name. <laughs> and I ran out of time to do that. So <laughs> if you can say it for me once, then I will go through the rest of your background because it's amazing and I want to make sure everyone hears it, but I want to give you the respect of pronouncing the, your name correctly. Of course, no worries. It's Roslitsky. Like Ros lit a cigarette and went to go ski. Roslitsky. Uh, Roslitsky. Yes. Dr. Lada Roslitsky. Yes. Awesome. And uh, uh, she is the founder and managing partner of the International Ukraine-Oriented Defense and Security Study Consulting Group called Black Trident, which was established in 2019. Her company consults governmental organizations as well as the private sector on Ukrainian matters ranging from private military industry cooperation, media relations, and advocacy to policy and legal analysis. She holds an LLM in international law, and her PhD dissertation predicted how Russia would illegally annex Crimea in 2014 by strategically using, using Kremlin-oriented post-Soviet corruption and information operations. Wow, guys, sounds right up our alley, right? <laughs> And I'm going to continue, Lada, if, if you'll let me. Um, she is also a former fellow of the Harvard University Black Sea Security Program and adherent of the Copenhagen School of Security Studies. She has decades of comprehensive practice working with institutions such as the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, NATO, the European Commission, the Geneva Center for the Democratic Control of the Armed Forces, the Ukrainian Vice Prime Minister's Office for European and Euro-Atlantic Integration and many more. Um, she has uh, also, um, she is a regular on radio and television stations and an editor in, of the Partnership for Peace Consortium Special Ukraine Editions of Connections, the quarterly journal, and a special international correspondent for the Kyiv Post. And uh, I'm, again, um, Lada was introduced to us by one of our regular listeners. Honestly, folks, a listener just like you. And I really appreciate that. I have been fortunate to be involved in several interviews that have come to us from listeners like you. And 
I am so thankful to meet such talented people uh, through people. So remember, this is a community and this is what we're here about as well too. So thank you. And, and Prince, are you ready to, uh, do you want to say anything on introduction or, or should we I, have a... Uh -huh. I am good to go. So go for it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. And, and just real quick, folks, we know that over the last few week, weeks on Friday nights together, well, Friday nights in, um, <laughs> in North America anyway, some crazy early hours of the morning if you're in other locations, but we have been focused on understanding genocide in Ukraine. And part of our goal has been to do a deeper dive and understand at a still a basic level, we're not gonna turn into international lawyers overnight, but to be able to take our, our passion and our, our pain that, that we share with Ukraine when we see and hear of these horrific acts um, that are being performed against their country and against their civilians and soldiers, but but civilians in particular end up being um, the headlines that horrify us. But we wanted to to harness some of that into more objective, actionable information, so that rather than trying to to shout at our um, politicians, whether it be the U.S. Congress, whether it be Canadian MPs, whether it be U.K. MPs or, or EU um, government officials, rather than shout at them going, this is horrible, fix this, we wanted to set up more information to help provide that framework that the Geneva Convention gives us to express that in more clear and more objective terms. No different than us as a group, rather than say, this is horrible, send them weapons, being able to speak in that area more eloquently. Well, that's our goal here, is to be able to speak about genocide um, less emotionally to those individuals, but Nancy, your audio is going wonky. Do you have another hurricane coming? <laughs> she may not be able to hear me. Let me send her your message real quick. Um, sometimes this happens. And so no worries. Give me just a second. Nancy, can you hear me? Your audio went wonky. You might need to move to a different place in the house. Okay, she I'm going to move locations. Yeah. So um, bottom line, um, I don't know how quickly you can move, Nancy, if you want to finish your thought. Um, but bottom line is a lot of we really appreciate you being here and appreciate your expertise. And um, we want to uh, understand genocide. And that's that's what we really want to do with with this time. And I, I really look forward to to what you have to share with us. So um, why why don't we just get started and uh, and have you uh, just share with us a little bit what is uh, what what it is that you you discussed with us yesterday about genocide and how we need to understand genocide and in, you know including actually we talked a little bit about incitement, intent, and uh, duty to protect, uh, duty to prevent. So 
Go ahead, Lara, and thank you so much again for being with us. Well, uh, first, again, uh, thank you so very much for covering this topic. And of course, genocide is uh, probably, it is the worst crime on the planet. So it's difficult not to be emotional about it, particularly when you belong to the group that is uh, being targeted. And living in Ukraine, it's a daily uh, attack that uh, composes is 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 comprised of um, acoustic terrorism to actual torture and and th this daily grind of uh, targeted destruction of the Ukrainian nation per se, and this makes the Ukrainian genocide uh, quite special because it's actually really done in a very open manner with a cross-state aspect. When we look at the past, it has not really been, when we look at genocide, ex except for uh, the Second World War, uh, interstate. Usually genocide happens by uh, the state within a state. And in Ukraine, it's just a very blatant interstate uh, activity that is taking place. And um, we have types of responsibility. And one of the things that I would like to talk about is um, the personal responsibility of the individuals who are actually committing it, but also state responsibility, i.e. the Russian Federation that is uh, um, guilty and, and should see the, the light of justice in the international courts. But also there is a duty, a very serious duty to prevent genocide. So the countries that are standing by, and particularly the Budapest Memorandum countries who just stand by and say, oh, you know, like it's happening in Ukraine and it's, it's going to uh, damage our budget to help Ukraine. They're in fact, uh, in, in accordance with international customary law and international law, they're guilty of not living up to their duties uh, to prevent the genocide of, of the Ukrainian nation. I hope you can hear me. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. We can hear you perfectly fine. If there's a problem, we will let you know, I promise. And uh, yeah, no, we, we, we deal with this all the time. We have one guest. I don't know if you know Thomas Steiner. He comes on sometimes for nine hours at a time. So yeah, I think his record is eight or nine hours. Wow. So we, we got, yeah, <laughs> we, we got you. And uh, we will let you know if there are any problems, but you are sounding absolutely perfectly great. Thank you. And so, Lada, can you tell us about um, the work that you've done most recently related to intent? And uh, we've talked in previous sessions about the different categories of genocide. Um, and I'm curious whether you're looking at intent from a broad brush or doing a deep dive into um, specific aspects of the Geneva Convention, or the, sorry, the Genocide Convention mm -hmm. categories? Uh, yeah, that's a really uh, important question, because what we're seeing now, very unfortunately, and most recently from representatives of the United Nations, uh, claiming that there is no real evidence to date that genocide is being committed in Ukraine. And we're forced to just use these terms war crimes or crimes against humanity, but not really genocide. And war crimes and crimes against humanity are actually the building blocks of genocide. What makes genocide um, particularly special uh, 
is that it requires something called intent. So you have to prove the intention uh, of, of the aggressor to actually eliminate in whole or in part a targeted group or a protected group. In this case, it's the Ukrainians. Um, so when we look at what is happening with intent, the unfortunate perception uh, and, and let's say uh, common language from the international community is that what is happening in Ukraine isn't genocide because intent is much too difficult to prove. So let's just focus on war crimes and crimes against humanity. And intent is extremely important to prove, but to believe that suddenly we're going to get some sort of exposed secret documents from the Kremlin that will have Putin's signature saying, please genocide Ukrainians. I mean, that's kind of fantastical. We're not going to find that. But what we need to do is really look into um, how can we prove on a scientific and juridically uh, sound level that the Russians have the intent to commit genocide against Ukrainians. So what my group and uh, working together with Ukrainian representatives of Ukrainian institutions, we're focusing on something quite unique. And that is looking at Russian informational warfare as proof of intent to commit genocide. So when we take a long look, a broad, like, like step back and look at what Russian uh, um, propaganda has been towards its own people in, inside of Ukraine, towards the European Union and as far away as, as the United States and Canada, we can use something called historical path dependency theory and see that the Russian policy to... Uh, to numb the audience and to promote hatred and discuss and discuss and demonization of the Ukrainian nation has been going on almost since uh, the very beginning of the fall of the Soviet Union. So that's what we're focusing on is developing a methodology that will take that informational warfare from the Russian Federation and prove intent using um, their disgusting uh, denial of, of the right of Ukrainians, Ukrainians to exist, and Ukraine as a state as well. Thank you. And I, I'm going to open up, Gina. I see you've got your hand raised, and I know you've got some very relevant questions um, to ask of Lada. So please go ahead. Yeah, Lada, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Russian propaganda because I've really studied the work of uh, Julia Davis, and I'm sure you're familiar with her work, her really heroic translations of the Russian propaganda. It's available on YouTube, and it's often, it's already been cited in several reports. And, you know, there's a great expectation it will be used in, in proving intent. My question is this, and, and I'm a journalist by training, I really want to drill down into what that burden of proof looks like when we get to, you know, the international court level here, what specifically do the, you know, judges need to see in this presentation of propaganda as proof of intent specifically, that it has to come from the Kremlin, that it has to be easily interpreted as meaning go kill Ukrainians. I mean, which is pretty blatant, of course, in the propaganda. It's openly stated. But I just really want to get a sense of expectation and understanding from a juridical point of view, 
what it's going to look like when we get to that? Uh, great question. And uh, to date, this type of the, the approach of in, in, uh, informational warfare as proof of intent to commit genocide is uh, innovative. So we can't really say, uh, look at what happened in Rwanda or look at what happened with the Nuremberg tribunals, and this is what we're going to do with Ukraine. And one of the cool things about our day and age is that we have uh, um, technologies, including artificial intelligence that can actually really focus on uh, proving and categorizing that intent. And what that means is really taking the individuals. So again, it's really important that we keep the level of international responsibility uh, separate. So we have the individuals who uh, organize and, and promote incite uh, genocide, which in itself is a crime. And we also have the state responsibility. So Russia that is, is, or is organizing the genocide. And the onus is a little bit different for the two different categories. But what we need to show is over time that the messaging that is becoming out of the Kremlin and is important to understand and, and totally accept because there's no, it's not, we can't discuss this as a fact that there is no free media in, in Russia. Everything is organized by the Kremlin. What comes out of the Kremlin uh, and, and the media is organized by the power keepers. So when we take a look at what is happening in Ukraine, we can go back, let's say to 1997, which is a good starting point for Ukraine as it pertains to the Russian Black Sea Fleet, and really analyze the type of um, uh, activity. So not only the linguistic uh, claims that Ukraine doesn't exist, but also the uh, psychological operations that take place in order to change the perceptions of people that live in Ukraine. And what we do is, again, uh, we have to really, really strictly adhere to something called like security speech acts, uh, which are um, acts that will damage the national security of a particular country. So let's just leave it to Ukraine at this time. So it's a continuous messaging that targets the hearts and minds of Ukrainian citizens to make them not want to love their country, to make them want to be more loyal to the Russian Federation, to the Russian agency, to the Russian post-Soviet criminal nexus. So what we focus on is what type of messaging is coming from the Kremlin targeting Ukrainian citizens, for starters, because the, the Russian citizens and, as I said, the, the Western citizens are also targeted. And, and actually the global south, which is a huge, uh, different, different conversation. So when we are able to categorize which specific components of Ukraine's or any state's national security is being targeted by malign uh, information and uh, psychological operations, we're able to then graph them and place the, the frequency of what is being attacked in order to make people actually want to kill each other and destroy a particular nation, usually using anger and fear as the base, uh, base emotions. Go ahead, Gina. 
You don't have I'm to sorry. raise your hand every time. <laughs> okay. That's 12 years of Catholic, 12 years of Catholic school. What can I say? Um, Lada, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you might be and probably are familiar with, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Sergei Sumlemi, who is a, a researcher in, in Europe and has you know, done a lot of work in, in looking at Russia's propaganda in Ukraine. He's, um, I think he's, part, he's the founder and managing director of the European Resilience Initiative Center in Berlin. It's a think tank. But at any rate, about a year ago, he did a really brilliant Twitter thread. It was called Twitter then. And it was a look at how under Putin, Stalin's image mm-hmm. had been, quote, rehabilitated through popular culture, through movies, through comic books, through children's books. Would that eventually, do you think, make the bar for the kind of evidence that you need to present? Or is that just kind of contextual and it wouldn't really be admitted in proceedings? No, no, no. This is actually a key element. So when we're looking at soft power uh, attacks or or informational psychological um, operations, they target uh, also the common, the shared common past. So what the Russians do is that they do have that first Russian empire, empire history, then they have that Soviet history. And by using Stalin on a very, very emotional level of him being a hero, uh, is calling in on that, that memory, that emotional memory that individuals, even young ones, are carrying. And what we've seen since since 2014, actually, the revival of Stalin as the hero and savior of of the Kremlin, and there are icons made before the uh, the Russian men and even Ukrainian individuals who have been forced to fight against Ukrainians, which is a, a, a genocidal crime in itself. Um, they they're led around by uh, Russian Orthodox priests who carry icons of Stalin. So this is definitely a very serious component of of their psychological operations to make uh, Russia great again, if you would, by committing genocide, and not only in Ukraine, but but far beyond. Lada, to jump in, would this be a place, because I know it's in some of the reports you sent us, would this be a place to jump off and talk about, as you call it, the sacralization of war, that use of religion yeah. to justify this war? Did you want to go there now? or Because oh, I know that's a pretty hefty topic. But it's, it's actually probably one of the most important topics, particularly since um, I regularly uh, speak to the Global South, on, on, to Arabic countries and, uh, and India, where this sacralization of war which has been identified as a category of expression of intent to commit genocide. So basically, if you guys are Satan and we have the apocalypse happening and we have to eliminate all of you because this is a holy war. If we do an analysis from the messaging that is coming from uh, from the Russian Federation, they're not only dehumanizing Ukrainians, they had to dehumanize us in order to make it easier to kill us. But they're also really putting in this message that this is a proxy war, that Ukraine doesn't exist. And um, in fact, this is a war between good and evil, the Kremlin and Washington. And that this is an apocalyptical war. 
and it gets really, really ugly when we start seeing the uh, gender conversations, when we see uh, capitalist questions, oddly enough, or, 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 or ironically, the, the question of capital, uh, capitalism and, and materialism. When we really, really weed down to what the Russian Orthodox Church has been doing in Ukraine, it's insane. It's insane that it has taken Ukraine so long to address the fact that this direct arm of the Kremlin foreign policy has been and continues as well in Canada and in the United States and all over the world. They continue to promote pro-Russian, uh, what I call black matter imperialism. In Ukraine, what they do, they're going to very, very clear example, and it's all over the country, the, somebody from the Russian Orthodox Church will come and say, this is holy land. Hundreds of years ago, there was a Russian Orthodox Church here, or some Russian was killed here. And they will put up a cross, a plain old simple wooden cross. And then they find some generally older ladies who will pray on their knees day and night, in front of this cross. Then they build a little altar and then they build a church. And then they say that this territory that they have taken actually belongs to the Russian Federation via the Russian Orthodox Church. And inside of those churches, to get back to the genocide question, uh, what happens is these very unfortunately manipulated believers that the adherents of the Russian Orthodox Church actually start they, they pray for the uh, demise of, of Ukraine. They actually have something called anathemas where they pray for the eternal uh, burning in hell of, of the soul of Ukrainian uh, individuals and going as far back as to the 17th century. And they pray against Ukraine. So finally, Ukrainians are, uh, are the Ukrainian institutions are starting to fight back against the Russian Orthodox Church and saying, actually, no, we're not subhumans. Ukraine is actually the mother of, of Christianity in Russia and get out. But it comes down to re it's tender emotions. So it's very difficult. I was in the Lavra, which is... Um, uh, the ancient caves in Kiev, where the Russian Orthodox Church was actually told to evacuate, to, to leave, evacuate, because of, because of their strategic separatism. And the, the true fear and pain that the adherents of, of the Russian Orthodox Church were feeling uh, was, was quite sad, because you could see the direct manipulation, the political military manipulation of, of individuals who just want to pray and light a candle. Yeah, it's, it's, that's one of the key problems in Ukraine is the Russian Orthodox Church. Go ahead, Gina. I'm so I know sorry. This is, this is, this is, this is, no, this is so your, your, your total um, area. And, uh, and, you know, this is, you know, I have to tell you just real quick, Lada, whenever I have something religious oriented or a question about about those kinds of things it is always gina i call and uh she <laughs> she was in ukraine um in june and and uh interviewed uh i apologize i can't remember his name Sladislav 
I never pronounce it right. I apologize. Anyway, I will stop now. Gina, please continue. Thank you so much. Oh, no, no, I was, I did, I got a chance to actually talk, Lada, to the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Patriarch Svetislav, mm -hmm. and also to the head, or the, rather, the external relations director for the uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and he pulled no punches with me, <laughs> I mean, about, no. you know, Archbishop Yevstrati Zoria, and I apologize for my pronunciation of Ukrainian, it's not that good, unfortunately, but he pulled no punches about saying that the Russian Orthodox Church was essentially a department of the Kremlin at this point, yeah. and Patriarch Svetislav said, you know, it's just been so corrupted. I mean, I saw today in one of the news reports that, you know, Russian, one ortho, Russian Orthodox priest is teaching children in Russia how to shoot guns and disassemble guns. I mean, this is just beyond the pale. But my question is getting back to that proof that, that Prince and Nancy always keep me on track with, like, how do we prove intent? In the case of the, the use of religion to incite genocide, what does that look like? Is there precedent in previous genocide prosecutions? Because, you know, I, I apologize for not knowing more about mm -hmm. the Rwanda genocide, but I'm, I don't tell me if I'm wrong. I, I don't I know that propaganda was used, certainly the radio station that did so much to to incite genocide. But but was religion how was that prosecuted before as an incitement to genocide historically? Well, as a direct instrument to um, commit genocide, as we see the Russian Orthodox Church has been doing and continues to do, uh, is not precedented, to, to my knowledge, in uh, genocides post-Nuremberg. Uh, in Nuremberg, that uh, dehumanization and the uh, um, comparison and promotion of Jews as belonging to Satan and uh, infected individuals is something that is very close. And we do see a pattern uh, from a juridical perspective that, yes, we're using religion, the sacralization of war to justify the elimination of, of a protected group. So when we're looking at, let's say, from an academic level or really a, a, a juridical level, uh, from that religious perspective, we have to use uh, linguistics. We have to look at and analyze the securitization speech acts that take place. So Ukrainians are evil, they're uh, subhumans, they're Satan, and really analyze who is saying it. Uh, if it's coming from Russian media, if it's coming from Russian uh, actors, if it's coming from the Kremlin, and really analyze the, the wording, the uh, consistency of their messaging, because what we see is that the Kremlin's uh, verbal attacks and dehumanization of, of Ukrainians is escalating. And it's not stopping. So we, we become from being brothers of, of great Russia to being subhumans and and infected cockroaches whose children need to be drowned. And this is coming out regularly on Russian uh, national television. So it's really, it sounds quite like an enormous uh, task, but thank God we have the technology and artificial intelligence that we really need to focus on that methodology of understanding what type of speech acts are being, are coming from Russia which specific elements of the national security of, in this case, Ukraine, are being continuously targeted in order to prepare 
the minds and the hearts of individuals to actually want to kill and, and exterminate Ukrainians. So it's a little bit complicated, but to make it, to make it simple, the most, without like explaining formulas, um, the most important aspect of this, the state power potential. So every country has this power potential. And the most important components of a state power are not the, the critical mass. So it's not about the, how many people you have or how much land you have. It's not about the economy and it's not about your military capacity. It's about the hearts and minds, it's intangible. It's how people perceive themselves, how they perceive each other and how they perceive the state institutions that they live in. So when we're looking at um, the, the intent to commit genocide, and analyzing it from within, we have to look at what messaging, what messages are coming from the Kremlin that are going to target your heart and your mind to make you want to hate me, to make you actually justify um, exterminating me and my family, or actually to make you not want to help me at all. And that's when we come into that duty to prevent genocide that um, unfortunately in my perspective, Ukraine's allies are, are really slow and uh, inadequate right now. Yeah, uh, just as a follow up to that, because you referenced it earlier, it's a document I've referenced often. I wanted to ask when you said the Budapest memorandum, would you clarify, could the failure of the signatories to uphold it, honor it, be used as proof of complicity. And the reason I ask is this, because a few days ago down in Washington, D.C., Luis Morano Acampo, the first prosecutor uh, of the, the ICJ, was testifying about the Nagorno-Karabakh situation. Anybody and hear me? We can, I can hear you, Lada. Hello? Lada? I'm, I'm here. Can you hear Gina? Can you hear me, Lada? I'm not sure she can. Yeah, I'm not sure she can hear me either. And Nancy had to uh, escort a scorpion outside. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. Can you hear me now, yes. Lada? Yes, I can hear you. Yes. Can yeah. you hear me, Lada? Yeah, I can hear both of you. Yay. Okay, great. I'll, okay. I'll just ask. Well, I feel that I, I'm asking a lot of questions. It's kind of what I get paid to do. But I'll ask one more for the moment and then certainly make space for others to ask. But Lada, you were saying, circling back to that Budapest memorandum that you mentioned, could it be used, the failure of the signatories to uphold it, could that be eventually used as argument for complicity in the current genocide? And the reason I'm asking is this. A few days ago, earlier this week, down in D.C., there was an emergency congressional hearing uh, headed, uh, headed up, by up by Chris Smith, Chris Smith who, who was, was discussing the Nagorno-Karabakh crisis. Yes. Uh, Luis, uh, Luis Moreno-Ocampo was, was the first, there we go. Oh, okay. Sorry, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Well, the, anyway, so the first prosecutor, uh, the first chief prosecutor of the ICJ was arguing that, that technically the U.S., there was a way in which it could be seen, it could be seen as being complicit to an ongoing genocide in that case through its failure to take adequate note of what Azerbaijan 
was doing to Nagorno-Karabakh successively over the months by blocking the current, the one and only way in and out of that enclave, stalling aid, continuing to negotiate. So I was listening to that language and then thinking about you, what you said about the Budapest memorandum and just wondering, do you see that being a possibility in, in, in the court? Uh, because we were getting some feedback, I muted your mic. You might need to unmute it for us to hear you now. Lada, if you can unmute your mic. Okay, Nancy is sending you a quick message. Lada, we may be having a little bit technical difficulties here. Hello? There we go. There, there we are. go. There you are. Okay, turn it on and off. Great. Um, yeah. And I would like to focus on that a little bit, because what we see Russia doing, and it's been a huge part of my life, is identifying uh, what is called Russia's uh, strategic separatism. Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me, guys? I can hear you now. Okay, I'll keep going. Keep talking. Keep going. Okay. Keep going. So, um, great question about Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, I would like to step away a little bit from the genocide discussion and really focus on Russian strategic separatism, particularly in the Black Sea region. So, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia panicked. And what it started to do is particularly in the Black Sea region, they started combining their military presence with transnational organized crime in, in geopolitically uh, critical areas. So Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, uh, Transnistria, and in Crimea. And then they even went further <laughs> dealing with Syria, but we'll leave Syria out of it for a second. So what they have been doing is really um, using informational operations and um, corruption as statecraft in order to sway the emotions and the perceptions of the individuals who live in, the, in these territories. And they're actually supporting the Russian Federation militarily and using a huge component of, of this shared common history, their, their feeling that the Kremlin is, is their, their leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So it's called Russian strategic separatism, and we see components of it even happening in the United States through, um, or let's say, by financing um, political discourse and, and discord within the United States is typical. But when we come back to genocide, the question of, uh, of Russia genociding can, after the, the Soviet Union fell apart, we should really go back and focus on Chechnya and see what the Kremlin did under Putin's leadership to destroy Chechens uh, and to destroy Russians in order to promote the, the elimination and destruction of, of Chechens. I think that's a, I think that's a, that's more than appropriate. That's more than appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we stop it? And the question, it was a great question, but the Budapest memorandum, it's sickening. It's really sickening to hear representatives who, uh, from, from America, and from uh, China, even France, very few people know that China and France actually 
did later come and sign the Budapest Memorandum, where Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world uh, for, for um, promises of their security. And UK, the United States, they're standing by and saying, oh, you know, this piece of paper that you actually signed is meaningless. And it is like the, the, the Western allies have made it meaningless. China kicks in with a Budapest memorandum when there is a threat of the use of nuclear, um, nuclear arms or, or nuclear threat. The fact that the Russians have taken over the third large, the largest uh, nuclear plant in Europe is a nuclear security threat that not only Ukraine is facing, but the entire planet is facing. But nobody is living up to their promises and Ukraine is being left alone. Lada, I wanted to Lada, ask, I wanted to ask you quickly, you about, quickly the about the nuclear terrorism. What this would be, or would it be, but I think it would be the first time a genocide has involved nuclear terrorism. What, how does that, how does that expand our understanding of genocide? What does that look like in terms of prosecution and intent? And Lada, we're sending you a message, but I muted you again because we were getting some really bad feedback. So unmute yourself and, uh, and keep on going. Thank you. Hello? Yep, there you go. Okay. Great question. So, yeah, this is the first time that uh, a threat of nuclear catastrophe is being used as a part of um, um, the intention to, to destroy a protected group or a nation, i.e. Ukraine. And it's really important <laughs> to recall, and it's in the fantastic a research document that has been created by Newlands Institute and the Wallenberg uh, Center for Human Rights, where they, they note that Ukrainians being terrorized by nuclear threats is particularly um, evil towards Ukrainians because Ukrainians suffered the largest nuclear disaster in, in human history, Chernobyl. So that terror of, of causing, it, it's causing psychological harm. I mean, I live in Ukraine. I talk to the people. I actually have some, some people and friends who uh, had to escape from Pripyat in, in, the, in the 80s. They were evacuated. So that nuclear terrorism is causing a, a specific level of psychological harm to a nation and, and people who who very well know what uh, nuclear catastrophe means. And they understand how the, the Soviets covered it up. I mean, Chernobyl was a huge cover up. So that, that in itself is something that, uh, that is a component of what lawyers are going to be looking at as to causing a, a psychological harm as a component of genocide. But we don't know what's going to happen here. Yeah, that was one of the things that I found really interesting in reading the New Lines report was was how the the taking over the nuclear power plant and the repeated repeated I forget how many at this point 
um, threats of uh, nuclear attack uh, by Medvedev specifically, um, how that is so terrifying for people who have lived through Chernobyl and people who um, are descendants even of those who lived through Chernobyl and the the catastrophe that happened there. It's a different level of fear for them because they have lived through that reality in the past. And it's it's uh, something that just just really struck me. It's something that I had not thought of, but it really is purely and very, very clearly mental torture. And in, in my my book, a, a, a piece of genocide that will have to be, you know, looked at and will have to be um, proved and and will be, will have to be um, will, will have to be prosecuted. That's that's what I think, my personal opinion. And I muted you again so that we don't have the reverb. So go ahead and unmute. Yeah. Hello? Hello? You're there. You're there. Go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, so that's it. I mean, it all sounds so overwhelming because we have the calls to eliminate Ukrainians. We have the um, unprecedented hijacking of a major nuclear power station. We have ecocide happening. And every single day, what we're hearing from the Kremlin is the denial that they're actually even here. And this is a military operation, uh, not a war. So when we're talking to or, or listening to Western media, one of the signals, we also have to be uh, mature and, and recognize poor coverage. When, when we hear uh, from Western media or wherever that this is a Ukraine crisis, well, <laughs> Jesus, this is not a crisis. This is a full-blown uh, frontal war, genocidal war. So we have to pay attention to the, uh, the language that is being used. But most recently, and you guys are just like <laughs> so awesome for covering it, um, that the United Nations representative was actually saying that there's not enough evidence to say that there is a genocide taking place here. And eventually, those genocide deniers uh, do stand, uh, they're facing international uh, responsibility for not only denying what is happening here, but not preventing the, the, what, is, what the Russian Federation is doing on a mass scale. I mean, the, the environmental damage that has been caused, let alone the psychological. And these constant, what, what's happening in Ukraine, very interesting, in fact, because it has not been done before, is uh, we're also experiencing something called acoustic terrorism. So the Russians will bring up their MiGs, and they know that every time a MiG <laughs> goes up into the air from the Russian territory, the entire country of Ukraine goes under uh, air raid alerts, so sirens. And they do this for fun. Like, you can, we can actually feel them laughing that we're being terrorized just by this up and down, up and down by their aircraft. So there's a whole bunch happening. And whoever has any doubt that Ukraine deserves uh, and... and <laughs> needs military and humanitarian support, anybody who doubts it uh, really needs to understand what is happening here better and understand that who those countries that do not support Ukraine will stand to um, in, in front of a court of justice in the future because they're failing Ukrainians 
dramatically. Go ahead. Go ahead, Gina. Lada, Lada. I wanted to ask about the Western media that is reporting false information. And I, and I have a specific person in mind, and that would be Tucker Carlson. I, I'm sure you're familiar with him, but if not, he was a very popular broadcaster on Fox News. And then um, after he was dismissed because of a lawsuit uh, that was filed against him, he went to the X platform, Twitter, and I, I was watching a video where, I mean, he is spreading such blatantly false information about Ukraine. He has been very anti-Ukrainian uh, from the earliest, from the earliest phases of the, of the full-scale invasion. And I'm wondering, do you see a possibility that non-Russian media and propagandists, but those who are complicit with them or echoing at least the same narratives, would be prosecuted for incitement. You go ahead and unmute yourself there, Lada. Lada, I think you're right. There you go. Yeah, sorry. It's my first time using this, so I'm a little bit bad no with my No mind. worries. Okay. Um, it's a fantastic question and very uh, poignant because... Western democracies, actually democracies all over the world, are extremely naive and protective of their freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And they're also naive, except maybe I think America is kind of growing up really quickly, to the depths of Russian agentry infiltration inside of, of, of our communities and our societies from professors to individuals such as Tucker Carlson. And the question is always, is this a Russian agent or a useful idiot? And in front of a court of law, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if, if you're promoting uh, information and, and distrust within the community and within the population that, you, that, that you're supposed to be supporting and, and the... The, the polarization that is we see particularly inside of the United States and the European Union with all due respect to the whistleblower of Facebook, which actually exposed that uh, they were using algorithms to really polarize and using that feeling of anger to get more clicks in order to make people angry and, and want to hate each other. So there's a, a case now in, in, against Facebook from the European, uh, a group of European parliamentary uh, members who, who recognize this. So that's a corporation doing it. But the Russian Federation has been doing this for decades. It's a part of the Cold War even. So this Tucker Carlson, who just wants to promote um, hate within the United States, who wants to promote hate and distrust of the Russian Federation, he is a national security threat to the United States. And I hope that that um, that the proper agencies are going to eventually understand and, and shut him up, frankly speaking. From your lips to God's ears. I think everybody... Uh, Oh, a, a great number of people would would totally agree with you. Um, it's it's uh, 
something that is, you know, like you said, stuck between free speech and uh, the responsibility to not just spread blatant, blatant lies. And it's it's just frustrating as an American. Um, Gina, let's go back to you real quick and then we'll go back to Lada and Lada. Um, when you want to speak again, I do have you muted again just because of the feedback. And so when you want to speak, you'll need to unmute yourself before you start. Go ahead, Gina. And then sure. we'll go back to Lada. Yeah, I see Marcus also has a question. I'm just going to uh, kind of add another question to the press question I just asked Lada. And then I, I certainly don't want to take all the space for asking questions. But in terms of, you know, we have a Tucker Carlson who's actively spreading unbelievably incorrect information lies about what's actually happening in Ukraine. But also we have journalists that are muting it, not actually telling the full tale. And I'm thinking back to, you remember the journalists during the Holodomor, you had the two journalists who one covered the Holodomor and the other covered it up. And that was Walter Durancey from the New York Times was the one who covered it up because he was currying favor with Stalin and Welsh journalist Gareth Jones was the one who actually traveled through Ukraine, saw the dead and the starving and wrote about it. And he died under mysterious circumstances several years later. But, you know, a lot of, what about those journalists? You probably can't, I would think prove, or maybe you could prove some complicity by omission. Is that a possibility in failing to failing tell the to story? Tell uh, failing to tell the story of genocide is definitely a um, international uh, crime uh, and a national one. Uh, however, the the society that we live in today has so little real journalism, uh, little professionalism, and what Russia has done and is so successful at it is it's we call it uh, lawfare. They take our human rights values and principles from a legal perspective and they weaponize them so that we can't protect ourselves. Um, I, I hate using Tucker Carlson as an example, but okay, he came up. But in a normal... Nancy, can you hear me? Sorry about that. Yes, I can. I, I'm having uh, some... Um, problems with my comms so I was afraid it was uh mine I think it might have been Lada's yeah we might have lost Lada here for a second um Lada if you can hear us we can't hear you um so I think that uh that uh, maybe I think Nancy should we drop her to listener and then invite her back yeah, I it, think so. It could be an, it could be an internet problem too on her side. Um, we there are so there are so many different options. She could have also gotten a phone call. But uh, okay, let's drop her to listener. Will you send a message? I sure will. Thank you. I, I mean, this is a small startup company, so I apologize. I'm sitting here talking to a dead mic or to a muted mic. A lot of, we dropped you down to listeners because sometimes uh, problems happen. We had a hard time hearing you. So if you can hear me, um, Nancy will be sending you a message. And uh, if uh, you close out the space and then come back in and uh, go ahead and request to speak again, we'll get you right back up and we'll continue on. 
Um, so yeah, these, these kinds of problems happen sometimes. They're not your fault. They're not anybody's fault. These are just the kind of things that Twitter does to us because Twitter is not perfect, unfortunately. Um, and, and, uh, it could have also been, um, it could have also been a, it could have also been an internet issue or maybe a call. Um, there are many options of things that happen. Um, so we will, we will get you back. She's requesting now, I see. Oh, Nancy, and I think you and I are having tech issues too, because I don't see her requesting, but that's okay. We'll get, we'll get there. Yep, we'll get through it. Nancy, can you see the request? No, I don't either. So I'll send a manual invitation. There we go. Now I got it. We just may have some. I did uh, too. I'm going to go ahead and recycle real quick, see if this solves some of my problems. Yeah, it's probably not, Heather, honestly. I think it's uh, locational on my side. Okay, okay, okay. Can you, ladies? Sorry, Lotta. Hello? Yes, we can can hear you now. Sometimes this happens, and uh, what we call it is Twitter pox. So, yes, I apologize. X pox. <laughs> yeah, we're so used to Twitter, though, but yes, X pox, 10 pox. Um, we also uh, go with the Xi Jinping um, pronouncing, uh, pronunciation of jitter at times. <laughs> so, did you want to continue with what you were saying? I apologize. Uh, no, I don't know where, where I left off, and we can continue doing this uh, for, for a long time. I don't know if you guys have any questions, but um, if, oh, yeah. Yeah, if you have questions, let's deal with it. And otherwise, I know we can, we can yes. move on. Thank you, Lara. Go, go ahead, Gina. I think Marcus had a question, so I wanted to kind of defer to Marcus because I know he was waiting for a while, and then I have one to follow up really quickly after that. Go ahead, Marcus. Uh, Gina, you're a queen. Uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to uh, ask, I don't know if this came up earlier, but um, as a point of comparison, it was difficult to pin down the uh, radio people in Rwanda that were encouraging genocide um, when when they were brought to uh, account. Uh, from what I recall, they were not able to be definitively charged. Um, so from a similar point of view, I think the people on Russian state TV are much, 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 much more deliberate in their language and the de- dehumanizing things they say. So I'm just wondering if there's confidence that they could be brought to account. Absolutely. I mean, they are uh, agents of, of Kremlin information policy. So um, from a perspective of personal uh, responsibility, they are committing international war crimes by, by provo- promoting the genocide and inciting the genocide in Ukraine. So um, there's a great list. Uh, it's called Putin's List, which is created by uh, Khodorkovsky and Kasparov. Uh, where if you go to their site, they have a whole slew of, uh, of individuals who work for um, the Kremlin and promote this war happening. And those people will, should probably be indicted in, in the future. Is that the great Gary Kasparov? Yeah. So it's, it's actually really cool. Um, I, I don't really want to promote... Let's say um, Russians abroad, 
it's a very sensitive topic, but if you just like Google Putin's list, it's a database of free Russia forum. And they have a lot. It's a really, it's a, it's a huge resource of, uh, of named individuals inside of the Russian Federation. And some of them are outside like Robin Abramovich, for instance. And they write about what crimes they have committed or how they are supporting, they don't use the term genocide, but if a good analyst would just see this is all like genocide, genocide, genocide. So I recommend looking at it. Um, it's a great database. Just one thing about Gary Kasparov is he seems like he's been a friend to Ukraine from the start. Again, <laughs> I mean, we have Ilya Ponomaryov here in Ukraine as well. Uh, it's a very sensitive topic of uh, a good Russian that supports Ukraine. And what we do here is we just ask one simple question, who does Crimea belong to? <laughs> and, and that answer will, will, will be very telling. But Putin's list from database of Free Russia Forum, it's a really good database. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to have to check that out. I do have a question too, but we'll go to Gina first because Gina asks really good questions. I am in awe of her. You are too kind. Um, I wanted to just say really quickly, Marcus, and then I have a question again for Lada. Uh, Marcus, they did get three journalists in the Rwandan genocide. They they'd sentenced two, and then they did get the third. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lada, but they did manage to get them on that for incitement. Um, but the other question I had, and it's speaking, speaking of Crimea and speaking of problems with Twitter, or now known as X. Lada, do you think that Elon Musk's admission that he refused Ukraine's request to activate Starlink in Sevastopol last year to, to aid an attack, he was saying, I don't want to be complicit in war. Would that be considered or could it be argued that that was a refusal to assist in ending genocide, that individually, because he had the power to help in an attack that was defensive, Crimea is Ukraine, that he was deficient, culpable? What would you say as a jurist? It's a great question. And um, it's something that we're on the, on the new frontier of um, corporations that are starting to rule the world. So when we see an individual like Elon Musk saying, actually, no, I'm not going to let <laughs> Starlink work. And I don't want to be complicit in, in like a act of war. Uh, by shutting it off, he already is. And what your your question is, is like so perfect. I, I think that I should write an article about it because he actually is by doing so. And I mean, I, I'm here in Ukraine, and my my friends are on the front lines, and we know how much we suffered, not only with Crimea, but he actually shut down Starlink systems on in, in Ukrainian territory where the Ukrainians were fighting. Uh, Russian uh, occupation. So what we're seeing is, yeah, okay, so on the one hand, we can um, put forth that he is supporting the Russian Federation in the elimination and extermination of Ukraine. But what we also need to look as, as a jurist, um, that growing uh, role that international corporations are starting to play in geopolitics. If, in, in Whoever's interested, just like Google uh, corporations, uh, geopolitics, maps, and when you see how much power 
uh, certain corporations have, they far outweigh the the uh, um, the economic value of most countries. So this is it's, it's a growing, expanding global uh, situation that we're seeing in Elon Musk. Unfortunately, he's not on the right side. Look at the power Google has. You used it as a verb for search. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is this is this is just amazing. And I, you know, immediately go here and uh, look at Putin's list, and I will have to take a peek through that at some point. Yeah, please do. But one of the things. Yeah, no, I I'll bookmark that real quick here, and and but one of the things I was thinking about is. You know, I, as I told you, I am the one who brings up the difficult stuff. And so, you know, as a Ukrainian who's living in Ukraine and living through this, how important is it that we know the details of exactly what is happening? The good, the bad, the ugly, the horrifying things um, to hear about and see about. How important is it for us to know those details of what is happening. I feel like a lot of outlets and a lot of people steer away from those details. Um, but but I feel personally like it is an important thing. And I'm just wondering your thoughts, because I don't think we can communicate genocide correctly without knowing some of those details. I agree with you 100%. And the details are so horrific. They're really, uh, the, the, the level of torture and systematic um, abuse of, of Ukrainians from one year old to a hundred years old is so covered up. And I think it's covered up by a, a, a spoiled, if, if, if you allow me uh, to say, a spoiled Western uh, democratic society that doesn't want to hear it. They're not ready to know what is being done. In Ukraine, I mean, we have Bucha and Izum, and the whole world knows about Bucha and Izum, but they don't know that we have hundreds of Buchas and Izums all over Ukraine. And we have raped babies, we have um, uh, mass castrations, and one of the most horrific, and this is like moments, like if somebody doesn't wanna hear bad stuff, um, this is probably when you walk away for a minute. But the use of um, construction glue, this foam, we have uh, systemic claims of um, this construction foam being inserted into women's vaginas and, and spilled in. So their uterus and their vagina is sealed forever with construction foam. We have numerous accounts of little boys being uh, raped, being put into dresses and, and forced to parade up and down streets in front of their little villages. So these type of stories aren't making it out. And I'm taking a, a risk right now to bring it out, but it's like completely, it's normal here now to hear these stories. This is, our new genocidal normal. We have so many Ukrainian little girls who have been raped in uh, from all ends that um, that that 
There, there's no difference between their vagina and their anus anymore. And surgeons don't know what to do. And these stories aren't coming out because, I don't know, democratic people uh, can't handle it. I don't think anyone's equipped to handle that. Right. But it's the reality and we need to be able to see the reality. And, you know, that's why I did put up in the nest the resources um, for people um, if needed, if they are having trauma and distress while discussing this topic. Um, but that doesn't, that isn't going to stop me from discussing this topic. If we lose a few listeners, that's fine. If you're listening to the Spotify recording, turn it off for a little bit and come back or fast forward it until we're through with this, because I'm not going to stop for a second here. You know, some of the things that I, I have, I don't think that I have seen the worst that I could see. I'm, I'm going to say that very clearly. I know that there are things that um, you shared with us when we talked the other day that, that I had not seen and I had not heard about. And I actually almost feel bad that I had not seen them and I had not heard about them because I feel it's my responsibility to be a witness to everything. Um, oh. But when you say they, they know Bucha, but we have, you know, hundreds of Buchas all over the country. Yeah. And, and it makes me wonder, do they really know Bucha? Have they really paid attention to all of the horrors that happened in Bucha? Um, but one of the other things that you made me think of is, is very, very distinct um, reporting. And, and this is from the New Lines report that uh, Russian soldiers have told Ukrainians, young Ukrainian women, children, that they want to rape them until they do not ever want to be with a man again. Yeah. And that is one of the ways that they are doing things. Um, the One of the ways that they are inflicting torture and one of the ways that they are working to make sure that the uh, Ukrainians do not want to procreate again. Yeah. And that is, that is what, you know, just a couple of notes that I took while you were saying what you said, yeah. go ahead. Absolutely. And so even for the women who can birth that have not had their internal organs completely destroyed or haven't been cut, killed, it's, um, it's a genocidal act and they're deliberately inflicting these conditions so that Ukrainians will not uh, uh, procreate, that they don't want, that is preventing births. And unfortunately, there's a real lack of communication on, on, on these horrors. And some people say, oh, no, you can't talk about this. This is, has, this is like for the International Special Tribunal or for the International Criminal Court. Well, every single day, this torture is continuing. This is like a daily thing. It's not like Bucha happened and, and it's over. Every single day in Ukraine, women, men, senior citizens, children are being uh, deliberately uh tortured and and in they're they're treating us like satan and uh, something that is really strange is very very little coverage is being given to the fact that the stupid russians excuse me are are um conducting so-called elections in their occupied territories of, of ukraine this weekend and these people we have seen my ciphers include over 238,000 children that have been sent to Russia. We have 19,000, about 19,500 that they've located that are being brainwashed 
they, they, they're taken from their families, they, they, their identities have been removed. They're all over the Russian Federation, as far as like, is on the border of China. And these, these are parents who don't have their kids. And these kids are being trained by Russia to hate Ukraine and, and kill Ukrainians. This is another genocidal act in accordance with, with the uh, protocols. So what do we do? Yeah, no, I, I, I know. And that is that is it, you know, and and you mentioned over 200,000, but, you know, Russia even says themselves that it is over 700,000. And, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to know the exact number, but I I, I wouldn't be surprised by the 700,000 or more mm-hmm. in, in the stories that I hear about um about the way that they are indoctrinating Ukrainian children. I, you know, read a story recently of, of a, a Ukrainian soldier who was a POW and that her child was staying with her in-laws in, uh, in not far from Mariupol. And they sent her to uh, the, the Russian school there. Yeah. And she, this six-year-old child was indoctrinated. And when she was able to get her daughter back her daughter you know says can we stop speaking ukrainian now and you know talks about uncle vovo being president of the world that's the kind of indoctrination that can yeah. happen in less than a year to a six-year-old child yeah. and you know and these are these are the things that we need to talk about but i've sort of gone on here for a second um ed gina go ahead lada i want to circle back to the atrocities that you described, the sexual atrocities. And I want to ask a couple of points here. One is about journalistic coverage. And then the other question I want to talk about is establishing intent and chain of command. So for the journalism coverage, one of the things that occurs to me is to ask, what can we as journalists do, whether we're on the ground there or working at other bureaus, what can we do to get this highlighted, bearing in mind, too, that when it comes to social media, a lot of our images get suppressed as as sensitive content on various platforms. So that's one issue. And then when when you and depending on which question you want to answer first, I'm just glad to have your thoughts on both. When it comes to these atrocities in the field, from a prosecution standpoint, what has to happen? Does it have to be proven that the that the the military or the mercenaries, whoever, whichever Russian thugs are committing these atrocities, that they're acting under orders, that they're acting, you know, on their own? Like, what needs to happen to get a conviction of intent and genocide in these cases? Uh, wow, that's a bunch of questions. So, responsible journalism. Uh, one. It's really getting the proper information and getting it published with, with um, hopefully um, sources that, that are not afraid to be referenced. And a key element of a civil society and journalists is take that information and go to your local politician and promote uh, peace and, and, um, and, and, and push them to realize their duty as it pertains to Ukraine or other countries uh, to prevent genocide. That's probably the most important thing. And of course, all of these like graphic 
videos um, are, are oftentimes censored. I mean, it, it's censorship. But the words, sometimes words can't uh, replace a photograph or, or can replace a photograph. So just responsible journalism, uh, sources that aren't afraid to, to speak out because um, the, the, there, there are a lot of, of warriors out here that, that are willing to speak. Um, as to responsibility of um, the individuals, I always have to like, hammer it down. So there's this individual responsibility and there's state responsibility. As it pertains to uh, genocide, in accordance with international law and international customary law, even if you have a maniacal um, individual who is um, brutally abusing Ukrainians, that does not remove his responsibility as an acting individual under the authority of the Kremlin regime. So this, this is extremely important they may be acting uh, outside of what we would normally say is justifiable violence, but they're responsible. And from the smallest guy to the highest individual, and it's important for people to understand that Putin is not the highest individual inside of the Russian Federation. The Kremlin has a, a system that put him into place. And when he leaves, they'll put in another person in place. This is not a democracy. This is an authoritarian uh, terrorist organization that is not only killing Ukrainians and, and threatening our national security in Europe and, and North America and globally. And the sooner people wake up and decision makers wake up and understand and appreciate this, the more empowered we will all be to not only see justice, but to stop the, the genocide now. We don't have to wait for some sort of end of the war to start prosecuting genocide. It's ridiculous. We do it now. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, it was, I believe it was a house, I don't remember which house committee it was, I apologize, but Michael McCall um, relayed a story from a woman that he met when... Um, when he was in Bucha. And I think that him actually taking the time and relaying that, that message, that story to members of Congress during an official, during an official hearing, I think was a very important thing. And, and uh, you know, being able to tell these stories and sharing these stories with our Congress people, you know, and our senators, I don't think is a bad thing. And we advocate for, for, um, weapons from Ukraine all the time, but I don't think there's anything wrong with us relaying these, these store, these, these facts. I hate to call them stories because they're not stories. They are, um, are, are real life experiences that we are, uh, relaying to them. Yeah. Um, we, we should be able to do that and to remind them that, that there is a duty of the country, um, to, to do something about that. And it's about time that they do. And and I know that there are stories out there. I I had um, sort of taken a liking just through writing and, and reading stories to Victoria Emelina. And uh, when when she was lost, I, I was rather devastated. And uh, but I knew that what she was doing with 
with going and meeting with people and, and, and recording their stories was such an important thing. And I know that, um, that she um, has given us a good record of some people and I wish she would have been able to continue with that record. But I just also, you know, you touched on it very briefly and, and it's, it's something that I want to just, it's it's awful to say this, but it's something that I want to highlight. It's something I want to say because people need to know it, no matter how hard and how difficult it is. Castration of men, castration of POWs, castration of Ukrainian citizens to prevent them from being able to have children, not to mention the mental effect that that has on a man. And, well, you know, not to say that the effect of being raped to the point where you don't want to be with another person for the rest of your life isn't horrid, but, you know, castration is seen as a very, very taboo kind of thing. And and it's something that we need to make sure that gets out there. And it's something that I have at least seen a couple stories about. And I know Gina has mentioned it in a couple of her stories, um, but it's it's just one of those things that people really, really shy away from talking about, even more than the rapes and abuses that have been happening to women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment to mention that if you have any reply, great. If not, we can go to Lita and I will get confused and call Lita Lada and Lada Lita. And, and we, we, I, they, they know each other, so it'll be fine. But um, if you had any comments about the castration before we move forward, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's widespread, systematic, it's happening and um, definitely um, preventing future births of Ukrainian people, let alone the mental health of the individual who has been castrated and, and his family life. We're going to see huge amounts of suicides in Ukraine. And this is another aspect of Ukraine's rebuilding is that we really need to get uh, organized psychological institutions and help for traumatic uh, stress because it's insane how many people are are suffering directly or, or by proxy. Absolutely. And that led me to something else, but I will wait with with going down that road. And let's go to Lita next and then to Gina. Thank you, Lana. Thank you, Prince. And hi, ladies. And this is amazing tonight. Um, and and so intense at the same time. Um, I, I'd like to go back to a question of when we were talking earlier about proving intent, which sounds like a very high level, like, court thing for later in a way but yet relative to that timing and if we say we're putting it out there and the, and we're trying to do it and we're putting it out in some time in the in the short to medium term future where does prevention come into play in this timeline and i look at it i'm, I'm not a you know legal professional but let's say in the healthcare field prevention of disease is done very early you know, before there's full-blown disease, that's the whole point of prevention or crime prevention. If you, you know, secure your house in a certain way to prevent, you know, intruders and that's prevention method. So I would think that, you know, my question is, what is the legal term or is there any precedent about what does it mean to come in there and prevent? What does that look like versus stop? Like, aren't we way further down the road here? And we have all these examples to say, okay, or, you know, how are we going in to prevent? And is there a legal term for what that prevention looks like? Thank you. 
Yeah, great question. So the convention is actually called the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So there's, uh, there are five duties uh, for the prevention of, of uh, genocide. And they're split into the preventing and the punishing. Right now, um, I don't really see very much prevention happening. Actually, what I see is more aligning with genocide denial and putting forward that these are war crimes and crimes against humanity. This is how we started the conversation, that these are the building blocks of, of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and that proving the intent, we have to get, start moving because you can't prevent genocide after it's been done. And there's no reason that uh, the international community should not be supporting uh, not only my team, but the, the teams in, in Ukraine and abroad that are working on this. Because the sooner we have this methodology, um, the sooner we can actually have uh, reliable data that proves that this is genocide. And that genocide, why genocide is important to prove not only from a moral uh, level, but it's also uh, because of the reparations. And the Russian Federation actually owes every single Ukrainian on the planet money for what they have done. We, when we look back at the Nuremberg tribunals, uh, we see that before the days of, of mobile telephones and internet, Germany continues to pay out uh, reparations and 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 financing individuals. My uncle, poor guy, was he's dead now, but he was stuck uh, as a as a German war uh, slave, and he received reparations until the day he died. So we need to when we have that genocide in there. The level of reparations, the level of sanctions, the level and, and the empowerment that uh, states and individuals will receive will be exponentially higher than if we just say, yeah, these are just war crimes or crimes against humanity. But how in the meantime could any other forms of prevention um, take shape? Uh, what would you like to see happen from from? partner nations out there now? Mm -hmm. I would like to see partner nations understand that Ukraine is not a beggar that says, please help us, please help us, that there is a live, real duty and onus on not only the Budapest Memorandum signatories, but from the international community, because this covers universal jurisdiction, actually, the duty to prevent genocide that they have to do it because if they don't prevent genocide in Ukraine or elsewhere, uh, they stand to be um, facing the International Court of Justice or, in, or, or standing in, inside of a, a special tribunal in the future. It's their duty. And then how should they come in there and do that prevention physically? Uh, yeah, basically kick into the Rammstein group, into the Copenhagen group, Stop negotiating. Stop telling Ukraine, like, on, on one hand, I really believe in conditionality of support, but uh, we need to have these Ramstein and Copenhagen groups understand that it's not something that, that they're being good-hearted 
countries or representatives of countries, they're actually living up to, to uh, their international obligations as identified after the Second World War. So that means, uh, sadly, it does mean providing Ukraine with the military aid, with the closing the skies. If, if we had had Ukraine's skies closed, which was completely possible uh, in, in March of 2022, we wouldn't have 100,000 dead people in Mariupol. So one day somebody's going to pay for those deaths. And I don't think it's just going to be Russia. That is a very good, very, very good point. I, oh, I appreciate that so much. I've got so many different lit notes here that are scattered all around, but uh, I'll make sense of them. But uh, this, this is amazing. And I thank you so much, Lara. But let's go back to Gina. Lada, I want to ask a question. This is going to be a bit, um, it's a bit of a hot button, but I do want to put it out there because I'm a Catholic journalist. And as you know, some of the statements by Pope Francis have been definitely highly controversial, to put it mildly, regarding Russia's genocide in Ukraine. And right now, the Ukrainian Catholic bishops are still in a synod meeting in Rome, and they did meet with him for a couple of hours directly and to try to explain their side of things. And apparently that meeting went from all accounts, for most accounts, pretty well. But my question is this, if a world leader, such as the Pope, who is the head of Vatican City State, you know, even if mm. for those who don't, you know, view him as a spiritual leader, he is still, you know, a leader of, of, a, of an entity, a legal entity. Um, what what is their responsibility? Could they be complicit in genocide for inadvertently or deliberately parroting Russian propaganda, even in seemingly off-the-cuff remarks? You. I'm just trying to get a sense of how you look at this as a jurist. Uh -huh. um, at the end of the day, Pope Francis is a mister, and he's a man. And he is carrying uh, a lot of responsibility. When uh, Dugin's daughter was killed in, in Moscow last year, and Dugin, for those who don't know, is one of uh, the, the lead um, architects of the genocide in Ukraine right now from a psychological operation perspective. His daughter was killed and that was the first time the Pope came out and said, oh my gosh, you know, it's terrible. His, his daughter was killed. This war has to stop. While hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have been injured and killed. So the lack of the bias that we're seeing coming from the Vatican, quite frankly, and, and with all due respect to, to religious individuals who adhere to, the, to Catholicism, um, the Vatican's bank really should be uh, scrutinized. And uh, we had the uh, certain international uh, criminal investigative journalism coming out and, and really analyzing where the money is coming from. And at the end of the day, a lot of people say it's all about the money. And unfortunately, I don't see spiritual leadership from the Vatican or, or anywhere else. It's, it's, and I've had meetings here in Kiev with, with leaders, religious leaders, and they use this, um, this is also kind of like a, a Russian lawfare 
they say we can't meddle because there is a separation of church and state and also Muslim uh, representatives here. There's a separation, which is kind of like a false mutiny. Come on, people. All you have to do is stand up and say, God says this is wrong. And <laughs> Russia attacked Ukraine and Ukraine is see that. Is it just me? No, there we I'm sorry, you cut out for a second, but you're back. And I think I lost you. Nope, you're good. I can hear you again. If you can hear us, put your thumb up, Lana. Okay. I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Great. Yeah, so let's pray. Let's pray for courage and true leadership because um, we need it not only for Ukraine, but globally. The war in Ukraine is a civilizational war. It's about right and wrong. Yeah, it is. And it's very easy to see um, what is happening is very, very wrong. Um, yeah. So when we come to this duty to prevent, you know, one of the things that, and, in, in, you know, I apologize. I have not had a whole lot of education on the genocide convention, honestly, until about a month ago. I mean, you know, I knew what it was and I knew the five, you know, main things that qualify, but to dive deeper into it. And that's part of why I'm really thankful that we're doing this because I'm learning so much. And if I'm learning so much, our listeners are learning so much. And that's, that's why we're here. You know, we have been here, we have been here 24 hours a day seven days a week since the full-scale invasion it started you know we have a team from around the world that does this and um you know a little bit later tonight i will be joined by somebody from australia and then when i sign off there will be people from Mm -hmm. i believe england and then at some point people from estonia you know it's just we're worldwide anyway that's if i if um, i may say like not only thank you thank you thank you thank you on behalf of like all of the good people on the planet uh, it's also so inspiring because when on a state level, the so-called leaders really believe that Ukraine wouldn't stand for more than three weeks, the level of, of goodness and volunteers and people who just like spend their own money and come to Ukraine and, and help people from Ukraine live in their homes is really inspiring and that's goodness and that's real charity and integrity so thank you like i'm so in love with you with your with your initiative and your dedication because every single little drop of goodness fights that black matter empire that that they're trying to build for us yeah and 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 just real quick i will uh I will also, since 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 we sort of went down that road, and I didn't intend to, it just happened. Um, we are we are five hundred one c three in the United States, and we do send funds for different things. And at the moment, I won't go into things that we have raised for before, but at the moment, we are raising um, some money for an SBU unit um, that works on the front lines, the SBU Alpha unit, um, and we are working to get some special ear protection and walkie-talkie accessories for them to make it to be able to make it so that they can uh, communicate easier and better and uh, protect their hearing a little bit. 
Um, so if you want, I believe it's the second tweet in the nest, you can go look for our friend Wardago, um, who pretty much everybody around here knows. Um, we are we are working with Wardago to get those um, those items for the unit that is needed. So just maybe, you know, I know we need to wrap up here soon and I really appreciate your time. It has been absolutely wonderful. Um, but, you know, what is, are there individual actions? I mean, I know we can contact our senators and we can contact our congressmen mm -hmm. or our representatives of government, no matter where we are. Um, you know, you mentioned that your team is working, um, working to do things, but what are there, are there any tangible things that we haven't already talked about that you can think of that we can do to help to re help our help the world realize that we have a duty to prevent this. And I claim to say I've said the first time since I figured you know I realized that that we do have a duty for, to prevent this. And you know today we failed at preventing this, but what can we do to help to prevent this tomorrow from happening tomorrow? And those those are the kind. I'm just wondering if there's any ideas that you have that we can do to help to um, to encourage that duty to prevent that you haven't already mentioned. Great question, and uh, it's shocking how much violence is taking place all over the world. So my answer it may sound banal or a little bit corny, but I think the number one duty is first be kind to yourself and be kind to others and recognize that truth does exist. And there are individuals on this planet who created on purpose this notion of post-truthism. So if you are a responsible human being, kind, uh, you will help prevent through your own actions, future genocides. Bringing it to an international or global level, um, be smart, Recognize that social media in, it uses algorithms that are specifically designed to make you angry and to click and become polarized. So do your duty as an information consumer and spreader uh, to understand that you're being manipulated and don't be manipulated. And of course, in democracies, go to your representatives and say, um, we need this done because if we don't stop it in, in Ukraine, it's going to be in our doorstep potentially next year. And I'm referring to the United States election. Absolutely. Um, go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, I was just going to say thank you so much for expressing that and really bringing it home to us and to our listeners, Lada, that that is... Gosh, I have so many notes and so many new topics you've taught me in in just coming up with the vernacular for some of the, the concepts, like the, the lawfare that Russia is doing. I think that's a beautiful description for it, and, and you're providing concrete words for, for so many concepts that have been rolling around in my head, but that what you've just said as far as what we can do truly on that small level um, is, is absolutely a moral imperative that we all can and, and should live by every day. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you saying that. 
Um, I was thinking, you know, bigger picture as far as, you know, knocking on the congressman's doors and things like that. But you're right. It starts small and it starts at home and it starts personally. And and I really thank you for for bringing that back home, because in the end, that's that's why we're here supporting Ukraine and, and supporting you and the work that you're doing and what you're fighting for is because this is all about people and we're all human and we all deserve the same fundamental rights to self-determination. So thank you so much for bringing that back home to us. Well, thank you. And thank you so much. And um, I want to give you and all of the listeners like a, a, um, global, uh, intangible hug and say, let's move forward. Yes, we're being genocided, but um, if you help Ukraine now, you won't be genocided in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we have uh, just come to a natural place where where it would be good to uh, to wrap this up and let you go and maybe take a nap. I appreciate <laughs> you so much getting up early this morning and it's in my book still early this morning um uh and and joining us for for this time and uh it it just has really meant a lot to me and it's just an absolutely priceless gina or nancy do you have something to add real quick before we wrap up and and then i think we'll call it a day for uh, call it call it a day for you i'm i'm still here for oh i think it's until I don't know how much longer I'm here. <laughs> I'm here for a while. Lada, I just want to thank you for your magnificent work. I've learned so much. And thank you for allowing me to just pepper you with questions. But I look forward to continuing to study in your work. And again, just thank you for shining light on this. And as Nancy has so many times, both Nancy and Prince have said in previous discussions, the importance of giving us a framework to think logically and systematically about this horrific evil so that we can advocate for Ukraine and, as you said, to prevent future genocides. So thank you. Yes, thank you very, very much from the bottom of my heart. And I wish you ladies uh, and everybody a nice day, a nice night. And I'm probably going to go walk my dog now. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank yeah. you so much, Lada. And uh, and we'll keep in touch. We'll keep Wonderful. in touch. Maybe we can find... I You have such knowledge on so many subjects. We may find another subject for you to come and, and speak with us about. And uh, I would appreciate that in the long run. So uh, we, will, we will talk to you soon and, and have a good day. Thank you. Standing by and goodbye. Goodbye, Lana. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Nancy, Gina, this has been an absolutely wonderful evening. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't. Oh, go ahead, Marcus. Let, let's let Marcus say what he wants to say. <clears throat> yes, it's unrelated to the the talk this evening, but not to um, our previous talks. Prince, did you say you were a librarian in the past or are now? No. No, oh. no, 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 I am not. Um, and I never was. Uh, Robin. Robin was. Okay, okay. Robin right. is the person who has been the librarian. Okay, because I looked up and read her Timothy Snyder book, uh, Blood Meridian. It's, uh, wow, it's really disturbing. 
Yeah, which book is that? It's a Cormac McCarthy book. Don't worry about it. That's a very okay. that's a very targeted joke. It's okay. Marcus, you do come up with some of the best targeted jokes. It's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and I I appreciate your sense of humor. Um because it is it is uh it is very good and very targeted and uh yeah. But no, it is Robin who is who is our our uh librarian and uh I you know, it, it I'll get her actually, with that one. I want you to be here. Okay. When I think you will. Yeah, I want to hear that one too. Yeah, <laughs> she she may have fallen asleep while listening, which she tends to do um, <laughs> at this time of night. Um, even though she assured us she would have a big, huge cup of coffee, I know it's been a long day for her. Um, but uh, what you know? But you know, speaking of books, just you know, mentioning we do have the book club that's happening on. Um, on Sunday evenings, uh, and they're still going through Timothy Snyder's, um, oh, geez, why can I never remember things when I need to? On Tyranny? On Tyranny, on tyranny 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. I have the book within arm's reach, so I was able to f- grab it real quick there. And then they are going to be doing the Russo-Ukrainian War by Serhii Plohi. Um, uh, so if you want to start reading on that one, because that one is a a bit bigger and maybe a bit deeper, and I don't know how how far they're planning on going with that. Um, so, do um, do we want to maybe go through? Because we talked about a lot of things, and we we have about an hour before um, the the Australian invasion begins. A little bit more than that, but um, if you guys, if you ladies are too tired, that's fine. Well, we can continue on. Nancy, you're stuck in the co-host seat, so you don't get to leave. Um, but, yep, you're but, stuck with me no matter what. Yeah, but if we wanted to, you know, go back to the New Lines report, because we did touch in, in talking with Lada tonight, we did touch on some of the items that we did not get to. Um, so perhaps going through a couple of those would be a good thing um, and just referencing um, those in how we did, um, how we talked about those a, a little bit with Lada, but but just pointing out um, exactly what those things are. I don't know how you guys feel about that. What do you think? That sounds great. Yeah, agreed. Okay, and unfortunately, I'm I'm scrolling here to try to figure out exactly where we left off um, because you know I know the one that that uh that really stuck out for me again tonight for for me tonight as we were talking with Lada what really really stuck out for me um were the examples that we talked about when it came to imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and i actually think that might be where we left off okay so do you guys agree that that's where we left off or are you still trying to figure it out and remember too because Everybody has a great, you know, memory sometimes at almost midnight your time. I believe that is because I think that last time we were, I think last time we were really focused on giving the support numbers earlier in the broadcast because we knew we were going to be moving into the material that was, you know, more graphic. So I I believe, but I defer to both you and Nancy as to the actual end point we reached last time. 
Yeah, and I think you're pretty spot on there, Prince. I'm thumbing through for the right page, but that sounds conceptually um, uh, about where we were from a from a what's next point. So if you've got yeah. it in front of you, let's uh, roll into it, and I will find my place here quickly. As far as the PDF document goes, that's page 49. So, yeah. Um, that starts that starts part way through page forty nine. Um, we do have a requester, so let's let's uh, see if we want to address that. Uh, see what see what uh, they might want to add before before we we plunge in here, and then we will um, continue on. And I think that uh, because of the examples that we talked about tonight, we may be able to speed through these last, uh, I believe, three topics. No, just I think two. I thought we yeah, I think it's one. two. Okay, um, we may be able to speed through these these topics um, and and finish this up and then move on to the next subject next week. So we'll see how this goes. For every child, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I just need to know what book you're in. Uh, we are on. Um, Nancy, do you have that handy? I might have it handy. I'll um, go ahead and pop it in the nest. I think I have yeah. it bookmarked freshly. Yeah, I think you do too. And I, well, I think you do. And I think actually I do also. Um, this is the New Lines, um, New Lines Institute for, uh, where is it? The New Lines Institute about the uh, report about the genocide for Ukraine, of Ukraine, which start, um, which they released in July of this year. There's another one that they did that they released in May of this year. Go ahead, every child. Is is that something I can download tonight? Oh yeah, it's a, it's a it's a PDF that you can download very easily. Nancy's going to put the link up in the nest. It's the same one, the same document that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Um, it is, it's 57 pages, but it's it took me. I actually haven't totally finished reading it. Um, but it, it, it takes a while to get through because it can be intense at times. And, uh, so yeah, it's, but it's a very, very good document and it goes back to, uh, is it just, it covers from the May 22nd, May, 2022 report until I believe June of this year. And, uh, I anticipate that they will, they will put out another one and uh, Nancy is going to share the links, um, in the nest to both of those documents. And I found an, oh yeah, I found another one today, another document today that um, I haven't even begun to look at because it's twice as long, but it focuses on Mariupol alone, which I think is very interesting that uh, people are already writing about uh, looking at uh, the the criteria for genocide and the proof of, of, of genocide in Mariupol um, before it is even free because they're before it's even liberated, because there are so many um, unknowns in that. But uh, being able to to research that even at this point is is a is an impressive thing in my mind. Um, you know, I, I and, go ahead, go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, and that's interesting too, because well, well, we know that when that city is liberated, that there will be volumes of data points related to genocide and and just horrendous acts and that's honestly part of why we decided to start this 
you know, this series is to help us prepare mentally for that with this legal framework. But there is so much of a, an extensive video record and witness testimony from those who escaped the city that I think there is, I'm very glad to hear that they're already compiling substantial documentation and bringing that information up because then um, that's all the more useful information um, when the city is freed and hopefully um, information that can also be used to put pressure to bear to give them what they need um, as quickly as possible to continue their progress forward. And I do have the new lines, the, the July 2023 New Lines Institute report in the nest. It should be the first tweet in the nest. I don't think I've got the May 2022 report readily available, but I know in the PDF itself, in the July report, I know that there's a hyperlink in there in one of their reference notes. Um, so you'll, you'll find it there as well for every child. All right. So, um... Article 2D of the Genocide Convention is imposing measures intended to prevent births within a group. And I think when we when we just think about that, uh, I know I personally, and maybe I read things more than other people and watch things more than other people, um, I can think of many, many examples. But, but let's, let's uh, look at what the summary says, because it's a rather short summary for this one. Um, there are numeral, numeral numerous instances of sexual and gender-based violence committed by Russian forces and authorities in all areas. Russian control, in all areas of Russian control, apologies, have, uh, have been well-documented and, uh, and have been discussed in other sections of this report also. Similarities of testimony regarding the overlap of sexual violence and targeting of a group identity have also been recorded. Rape and conflict-related sexual violence has been flagged in other genocide assessments as fulfilling criteria for preventing births, affecting women, girls, desires to marry, have children, or complete future relationships. Castration of male Ukrainians in Russian custody have been documented and emerging reported may indicate that this practice is widespread and systemic. So that is that is basically the the definition that they're looking at or what they're summarizing as far as um, imposing measures intended to prevent births within a group. And as as we talked about with Lada tonight, and and like I said, these are very difficult topics. I mean, they're very hard to hear, they're very hard to understand to not understand, but they're very hard to absorb. They're 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 hard for. I'm sorry, maybe wording it this way: a, a normal human being to to understand how somebody else could do this to someone, um, and and they don't seem to discriminate between any age range, as Lotta said. They don't discriminate between men, women, children, including very young children. And uh, nor do they discriminate, I would imagine. I don't know that I have 
read anything about this, but I, I don't think that they discriminate on class or maybe even occupation. And this may be hard. I don't know if this is, I do not, I have not, that I can recall, read any specific instance of this. I do know, however, that there are clergy who have been held as POWs, and there are clergy who are still being held as POWs. And I don't imagine that being a clergy member would um, exempt you from this kind of behavior either. So just saying, regardless of occupation, regardless of calling in life, I think that, the, that these acts would be taken um, by Russian soldiers against anybody, absolutely anybody. And measures intended to prevent the births within a group, as, as we mentioned, the window sealant, um, like construction foam being um, put into women's vaginas so that they uh, basically closing them off so that they cannot have children. Um, I, I cannot imagine having that done to me. Um, the rapes that continue on for days and days and days repeatedly by a single member of the Russian military or multiple members of the Russian military. Um, and then just also to highlight, because um, it's important that we don't forget um, the, the rapes, of course, also of men and the castration of men. Um, that is something that is widely practiced, I believe, um, by the Russians um, when it comes to POW specifically. Um, and I imagine that also um, the general population. Um, Gina, go ahead. Sure. I just wanted to reiterate that in the NASTAR, for anyone who is experiencing any trauma or flashbacks or, you know, and I've said this before and I've written about this, I myself am a survivor of sexual assault and abuse. So I know how these discussions can in fact trigger some horrific memories. Please know that there are resources for you. Um, and Prince has put them in the nest. Um, the other thing, when you were talking, Prince, about the multiple rapes on page 51 of the report, just to read one of those lines there, and in, in terms of how the Russian soldiers are able to sustain these attacks, quote, the UN special representative on sexual violence has said that rape is a Russian military strategy, noting that women have testified Russian soldiers are equipped with Viagra, Russian soldiers have been found carrying packs of condoms, and Ukrainian civilians have reported being required to provide condoms to Russian soldiers at checkpoints. So just, you know, which certainly demonstrates intent, systematic, you know, this is just not a, a you know, one-off or, you know, soldiers losing control. And I know having, having interviewed a rape victim in a village outside of, um, not far from Izium, they didn't want me to name the village. She hid in her, in a neighbor's house with her husband for two months. She had tried to hide. She's a very beautiful woman. Not that that has anything to do with it, but it, you could see that that because of her age, she was relatively young, like in her late thirties, early forties, she was kind of an, a noticeable uh, target, but she did try to hide. And eventually the soldiers came for her. And another woman in the village who was married, the husband tried to defend the wife and was killed. This woman said to save her husband, she actually, he was going to resist. And she said, no. Uh, and she went at gunpoint with them and, and was raped. And the soldier who raped her was, 
literally her son's age. So he was like late teens, early twenties. So, um, that trauma, I will never forget the look on her face. She was very stoic, but she would never even refer to it as the rape. She called it the incident when the incident took place. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to kind of put a personal face on that and again, remind people that if they have any, you know, reactions there, please do consult the nest. But then also, as I said, I thought that line in the report was very, very important to note that why would you give your soldiers Viagra? Why would you ensure they have condoms? I submit it's because you're using rape as a military strategy with the intention of preventing births, with the intention of further dehumanizing. Yeah, and, and that's that's one thing that the report does point out, um, in, in that, that um, these acts fall under many of the different categories of, of the convention. Um, you know, Article A, excuse me, 2A, 2B, 2C, and of course 2D. So all of the the uh, items that we talked about before, um, because they go ahead, Gina. I'm so sorry, and I didn't have coffee either. I can assure you, <laughs> but oh, it's I, okay. yeah, no. In line with that, on the next page, and this this compounds the trauma of the rapes for both the women, the men, the children, the castration, and, and the report calls it out and says the magnitude of, vi- of sexual violence from this war will only emerge over time, though will likely never fully come to light. And that is consistent with sexual violence in the world in general. People who have been sexually assaulted and, violence and, and violated, the the sh- though it is not any of their fault, they have a gut reaction of shame. There is fear of being reabused. And in some cultures, there is actual ostracization, you know, that, that the victim is made to feel that this was somehow their fault. So that just compounds. That's why sexual violence is one of the most, not that you can quantify pain, but it is truly one of the most horrific, horrific forms of violence that can be perpetrated against a human being because one of the effects is that it actually starts a cascade of negative emotions inside where the victim is re-experiencing that trauma and self-censoring from reporting and often doesn't have a lot of good resources to report it to in the first place. So I just wanted to highlight the, the kind of extra dimensions of sexual violence in, in general and in, in, as it's used here as an instrument of genocide. Yeah. And, and actually that was, that was one of the things that I was going to mention is that, you know, the not reporting, we will never, never, ever really know the full, um, the full ass, the, the fullness of how this happened. We will never really know because there will be so many people who refuse to report it. There will be so many people who refuse to talk about it. There, there will be probably thousands of people who, who just don't talk about it. And, and then as you know, Lada mentioned, you know, the, the, the suicide rate is going to go up in Ukraine. Um, and that is actually already happening Um, one of the stories that I read about one of the soldiers who had been a POW and and was castrated um, did commit suicide. 
there are others who rejoin the military, uh, rejoin basically, continue on in the military and go straight to the front line and act very recklessly and are killed. That's happened. Um, so that's, you know, so those are things that there, there's things that we'll never know. Um, just real quick, because I did mention it, um, but I didn't have them off the top of my, my, um, my head, but you know, this, this, uh, this preventing, um, children basically from being born, um, you know, it can fit into the killing members of a group when you hear about people who are raped to death. Um, or get injuries from that rape that caused death. Um, so it can fit under Article 2A. It can um, fit under Article 2B, which is causing serious bodily or mental harm to a member of the group. That is, I think, pretty uh, cut and dried. If, if they're able to uh, rape you to death, they are able to rape you to serious bodily harm and the mental harm which as Gina was saying goes on for the rest of your life at times um, and, and, it, and it comes up sometimes when you least expect it and then um, deliberately it also can fall under article 2c deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life life calculated to bring about physical destruction in whole or in part. Sorry, I had to cough there for a second. And uh, to bring to bring about the physical destruction in whole or in part by imposing measures that intend to prevent births within a group, you are doing that. You are inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring upon its physical destruction in whole or in part. Because you will be, you you have men that will not be able to have children. Um, you you may have men that that have been raped to the point where it would be difficult for them to have an intimate relationship with somebody else. But that is very very specifically mentioned in in the in this document, and I know that I mentioned it earlier um, when when Lada was still here. Um, but but maybe just a little bit of a quote here. Um, a woman from Izium reported being raped, tortured, and beaten for 10 days during the occupation of Izium. When she was initially detained, the Russian soldiers told her, we will beat the Ukrainian out of you. This follows a pattern from an incident in which Russian soldiers told the women and girls held in a basement for 25 days that they would rape them to the point where they wouldn't want to sexual contact with any man to prevent them from having Ukrainian children. So these, these are the kinds of, of things that, that are happening that, that fit this criteria and other criteria in the genocide convention. Go ahead, Gina. I was just going to say, by way of history, and this information is available on the uh, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's website, which has just excellent resources I consulted often in their Holocaust Encyclopedia. When the Rwanda geno genocide was pr prosecuted, 
that first conviction, which was for a mayor by the name of Jean-Paul Akayesu, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, um, for inciting genocide, that judgment, which was issued in 1998, was the first time that an international court defined rape as a crime in international law and recognized rape as a means of committing genocide. So I think that that's, that's something to keep in mind. And, and, you know, as we, as we look back at how this was prosecuted before with Rwanda, it would be interesting if we could have another uh, genocide expert, maybe at some point come on, or if Lada wanted to come back and talk about, especially that angle, because it's been so prominent in you know, Russia's genocide of Ukraine, the sexual violence. It would be interesting to see the specific ways that that got prosecuted before and how that's going to change now and, and what is happening in Ukraine that's going to maybe expand that understanding of rape and castration as a form of genocide or rather as a means of committing genocide. Yeah, and I think that that's very important, Gina, particularly since one of the other items noted in the report that really speaks to the systemic nature and the structured nature um, behind the military intent here and the, and the intent for suppression and subjugation is that Ukrainian officials noted that once the Russian ground troops entered an area, that rapes started on the second or third day. So it wasn't like they waited a week, got bored, and, you know, any, it was nothing like that. It was very quick, and it was consistent in nine regions of Ukraine that had been controlled by Russian forces, as well as, you know, in Russia itself, of Ukrainian citizens. So the, it, this is not isolated to a certain area, a certain region, it is systemic with how their invasion forces operated. And but, I think that's important too. And that is exactly what happened to the woman I interviewed. Because when the troops entered the town, it was, they told me it was like a few soldiers that came in, but it was about two, three, four days. That's when they started seeking out the women. That's when they started with the rapes. But it wasn't right away and it wasn't in some drunken, blitz it was very deliberate and 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 that fits the pattern exactly of what you just what you just quoted there what you articulated yeah it's a it's a we've we've heard some horrid excuse me horrifying stories so far and you know i just i just will share privately well not privately um i don't you know there there was one story that that lita um shared with us when we were talking to her about about uh, coming on and and I'm not going to tell you the the details of that one but what hit home for me on what she shared was how much we're not seeing how much and I as a person who seeks to find this stuff out as a person who seeks to find it and I know that sounds twisted but as I tell you all the time, I feel like we need to see all of it. Um, but the story, a couple of stories that she relayed to us just made it clear to me that I am really not seeing all of it. And as odd as it may sound, 
I, I feel a little frustrated with myself for not being able to to find all of it. Not that I need to see videos, but hearing the description, just hearing the descriptions and the um, the truth of what is happening um, works for me, too, because knowing knowing that these these uh, verified um, incidences are happening and are taking place and and we are getting testimony of it and being able to know that testimony and be able to share that testimony with others um, is, is an important thing. And we need to, we need to be able to know that kind of thing. And we need to be able to do that. Um, so um, just, you know, keeping in mind that uh, even I, who, who have searched this stuff out have not um, seen everything. I've, I've heard more stories um, and, and I'm sure that I will continue to hear more stories and I want to know them just so that I can help to convey them to you, um, in a gentle way. And, and I do, I do censor, I do, I do, do, I do censor sometimes, Gina will remember last week when I was reading a story out of the New Line, um, Institute report, and I intentionally left part of that story out while I was reading it, um, because I was good with reading it. But I, I knew that it would be extremely traumatic, um, and I didn't want to uh, put anyone through that that uh, didn't, you know, wasn't uh, <laughs> wasn't fully aware of what was coming. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I try to tell you the truth, but I try to do it in a gentle way as much as possible. And sometimes I will just not tell you all of it because it's not uh, something that something that I want to uh, surprise somebody with and, and risk somebody being traumatized. So anyway. I was just going to say, yeah, to add to that, um, and it doesn't get into the graphic details, but I think that, and it's always that toggle between remaining empathic to what is going on and being aware of it, and then also remaining logical and focused so that we can organize it and, put it in the framework of the genocide convention and prosecute it. Bear in mind, it takes a lot of hate and a lot of, a lot of rage to rape someone or to castrate them. And think of that, that it's, you know, rape is often defined as a crime of not so much sexual arousal, but really power. Do you know, it's, I mean, and I think that this is what's so horrific. We can't get our heads around, why would you attack a child like that? Why would you attack, you know, a frail old woman? Like, it's just incomprehensible. And it's born of hatred. Think of the state of hatred these Russian troops must be in to, and, and have been, you know, encouraged to be in, to be able to conduct this in such a in such a, a consistent, relentless way. Do you know? I mean, we do hear of things like, you know, a lot of the troops are drunk or some of them are high. I mean, we hear these things, but it's not all down to that, you know? And and I think that we need to just really look head on, even if we can't bear looking at the the you know specific details of certain cases, which I can certainly understand and appreciate. Everyone has different tolerance levels and and you know vulnerabilities and such. But just the general concept. Think of what that means when someone deliberately attacks like that. In the case of the castrations, the report notes on on page fifty two that that the procedures are being performed skillfully. 
with colleagues trading knowledge, apparently. So what, what does that say? What does that say about the state that these Russian forces are in that they're perpetrating this? You know, I just think that's something for us to keep in mind, especially when we encounter people who are saying, well, this is a territorial dispute or they really are brothers. You cannot argue that with such atrocities. You simply cannot argue that with such atrocities. You cannot. You cannot. So, um, like, you know, like we said at the beginning of this, I, I feel like we we went through some examples with with Lada tonight that, that were very good. And um, good as far as examples, not good that they happen, just being clarifying, very, very clarifying there. Um, they were powerful. Yes, they were very powerful. Um, but I think we've pretty much... Um, covered that part of the report at this point i do see that dave has his hand up i do also just want to to mention that um and emphasize that that you know the mental health services that are going to be needed in ukraine are going to be vital and uh, maybe you know i i may send um a lot of a message about this directly uh you know i have seen that the first lady uh, uh olina zelenska has done very much um, to to start to work on the mental health initiatives to be able to um, help Ukrainians through some through the things that they have been through, but I think there is going to be a lot more that is needed to be done. And uh, I'm just curious, from the perspective of somebody who lives in in Ukraine, um, how they see that um, at this point, and and what more may need to be done. And, and I think I, I probably will send Mata a message later today or tomorrow and ask her about that, because I think it's an important thing. Um, but also just to be aware that there are things happening to put together a mental health, um, mental health services. You can get those, um, there's hotlines set up. There are, um, maps of mental health services, and I believe there's also um, virtual mental health services. And and there's an app for that because it's Ukraine. There is an app for that also uh, because Ukraine does amazing stuff, technologically speaking. Go ahead, Dave. Good to see you. Hey, uh, I don't know. Are, are um, men even loud on the, uh, on the panel tonight? It looks like you've got a ladies' night going. Yes, men are allowed. We will let you uh what's that? And you are not the first man on the panel tonight, Dave. Oh, okay. Well I uh I'm sorry I haven't been able to listen the, the whole time. Um I'm sure I will. Uh after after this show is done in about an hour, then I'll be able to listen to it because I can it takes about an hour for Twitter to get the recording all put down so I can download it. Um but to I, so pardon me if you've talked about this uh, before, uh, but um, I, with with all of the, the things that have been documented um, with genocide here, how, how is it possible that the UN can can waffle so much about if a genocide is going on or not? Um, I. Is there anybody that can explain why the UN is not uh, saying that this is a genocide? 
I'm not ignoring you, every child, Gina. I'm wondering if you have a decent response to that because I sort of do, but I, I'm not sure I do anymore after talking to Lada. Go ahead, Gina. I, I would have to agree with you. I think after talking to Lada, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I do know from having spoken with a number of, you know, genocide scholars, um, you hear me, I just switched to my hands free, um, that there is a tremendous frustration, you know, in, in getting people to, to accept, to recognize the genocide in the first place. We're very good at denying it. And as I quoted last week, you know, Samantha Power's incredible book, if you get a chance, pick it up. It's, it's just really authoritative. And it's called A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. And she just speaks about the lack of political will and, and, and human willingness to, to see genocide for what it is in a timely manner, ideally to prevent, so we don't even get to this point. But, you know, I, I wish I had a good answer. I was just dumbfounded. I was truly, truly dumbfounded. So uh, I'm still working through that, just trying to bear in mind that the frustration is, is not unprecedented. You know, the thing is, is I think that if, if it is officially recognized by as genocide by the United Nations, that means that the signatories to the Genocide Convention and those who are part of the United Nations then need to recognize it as a genocide. Then officially, legally, even though it should be now, um, the duty to prevent kicks in, as well as other um, responsibilities and duties um, that have to do um, with each individual country's laws regarding the subject. And so it does, it is, it is awful. It is atrocious. And um, I think I've changed my, my view on this a little bit because, you know, I, I was initially when I heard it, it was like, do not have enough evidence yet because of the difficult improving its intent. But I see intent all over the place. And, and I know they have to be able to prove that in a court of law. Um, now, this is like the court of courts, the law of laws, and it's big. You know, it's not like trying to prove intent in a murder case in the United States or in another country. It is um, trying to prove intent to the point where everybody in the world believes you. And uh, that is a high, that is a big task. And so I think I'm going to go back to Gina real quick, not ignoring you, uh, Dave, or every child, but uh, I, I want to hear what Gina has to say to, to this. Go ahead, Gina. Well, I think Lana made this point in the presentation that she had submitted to us before coming on board. And she talks about not making that duty to, to prove the intent an excuse. And it can absolutely become that an excuse. And, you know, I think the other thing was, and I, I truly wish I could remember the listener's name. He, he called in one morning and he just spoke so beautifully and summarized it so well about how after, after the second world war, there was a true, and he used this direct phrase, hunger for peace. And there was a genuine desire to make sure not not perfect desire no human initiative is ever going to be perfect but but there was enough consensus and real consensus that we didn't want to go through that again and we were going to act and i think without pretending to be some sort of you know 
historian or, or you know, high level political analyst. But I, I think that even a lay person can see that over the years, over the decades, we have truly become very lax and willing to just make concessions, to appease, to turn blind eyes, to genocides, to war crimes, to human tragedies. You know, people make that decision at different levels individually, but collectively as states, you're absolutely right. We would need to act on this. There's a duty to prevent. And I think that we just keep in some way trying to walk back our obligations. And I think seeing how we treated the Budapest memorandum or didn't treat it, you know, seeing what we did and didn't do during the invasion of Crimea. I mean, those are all clear indicators that we we said, well, we have a strategy of appeasement here. We're resource dependent collectively on Putin. And we still are grappling with, and Timothy Snyder has called this out, you know, these kind of mystiques of Russia, you know, and somehow thinking that we can, you know, we can work with these guys after the fall of Soviet Union. And that's proven not to be the case at all. But I just offer those as some reasons why we still struggle to get this prosecution, this recognition and prosecution of the genocide and the prevention further advanced. Thank you. Um, Nafo Dave fought for follow-up and then we'll go to uh, every child. Thank you. Oh, I don't have any follow-up. Uh, so go with every child. I've got a new... Well, it's it's on it's relevant, but a new question. Of course, it's relevant because it's from you. You know, we don't call you Doctor Dave very often, but maybe we should start calling you Doctor Dave. I don't mind it. Go ahead for every child. Um, of 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 course, there's a there is an urgency to to act and prevent. Uh, Doctor. Dr. Nick uh, uh, covered some of the legal issues quite thoroughly uh, recently, and and uh, it's because of the enormity of it, uh, uh, and the need to to get it absolutely right, so that it's it, nothing falls through the cracks. Um, it's it's um, it seems to me uh, like uh, the same kind of frustration of uh, after after uh, January sixth, uh, uh, everybody walking around like nothing had happened and it was going about their lives and but it, the enormity of it was such that the and the the uh, requirement to 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 not let people just walk free without without uh, being accountable. <clears throat> um, when the attorney general in New York uh, 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 was replaced, and and the new attorney general said, "Well, there's uh, uh, there's just not enough here to act on," and what was it, another year or two uh, before he put his case together? Um, the I mean, the country's never experienced anything of that magnitude, and it it it, it has to be met appropriately uh, for government to continue, and this has to be met appropriately um, 
uh, I, I I was hearing that uh, like uh, with Rwanda, rape was for the for the very first time recognized as a crime. Uh, in I I I'm I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole with with uh, less significant examples, but. Um, we're 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 coming into a new place, and and the precedents we're setting, they they need to be impeccable and and without question and 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 cast in stone. Uh, there is an urgency. I'm I'm absolutely certain that the the magnitude and historical requirements um, are, are, are at play here as well. I just, there, there is an urgency. There is a big urgency because every day we see it happening over and over again. And, uh, and so that is, um, that is something that we have to keep in mind. And I think that's why we get so frustrated. We get frustrated because we see that there is an urgency because we read and we hear and we watch videos and we listen to things every single day that um, that show us the urgency because if we can't stop it today, it'll continue to happen tomorrow. And that's the urgency that we see. It's the urgency. It's, the, you know, it's the urgency that we see with all of this, you know, um, the urgency it's and then you know what it's part of why we're here because we see this urgency you, you know even before we knew that there was a genocide going on and it d didn't surprise any of us i think that a genocide was happening which we learned very early on um but there is an urgency for us to to support ukraine and and this is one part of that support you know, that's why we're here 24 hours a day, because it is urgent. It is urgent to be able to get that message out. And it, it's it's one of the reasons that we do things like um, raise funds to be able to buy ear protection and touch-free um, equipment for, for radios, um, because there is an urgency. Because you know what, maybe, maybe, just maybe, some of those night division night vision devices or those hearing protections with touch touch uh, touch to talk um, maybe maybe those little things that, that we see as little they, they may be ending up to be big things we just don't know um, so anything that we can do no matter how little it is um, is something that that we need to do because of the urgency and so I'm, I'm just going to, to leave it at that, I think. Go ahead, Dave. Right, thank you. Now, the, so the, I'm wondering if, um, if the Russians start, you know, if they pulled out uh, machetes and just start chopping up people, then maybe the UN would, you know, oh, this is Rwanda all over again. It better, you know, it's a genocide. Um, kind of some dark humor there, but, but I wonder. Um, also, the thing I wonder is if Russia being in the UN, um, it, how it, does it have to be a unanimous vote 
um, to be recognized as genocide because is, is Russia, can they quash this whole thing in the UN because they're there on the Security Council? First thing I'm going to say is when it comes to, you know, if they just pulled out machetes and started whacking people, I don't think they're doing anything much different than that now, really. They're pulling out missiles and throwing them into to apartment buildings. Um, but I do understand the difference in, in, the, in the subtle difference that you're trying to make there. Um, but what that comes down to is you have to prove the intent and realistically as as much as i i mean i like it it's it's going to be up to ukraine ukrainians in ukraine to hold those individual actors responsible that is why we see um suspicions and basically warrants for arrest being put out for um the people um and soldiers and units of soldiers and commanders who are um implementing these individual acts of genocide but you're going to want to go for the big guys that that help to that that prove that intent that it is a a statewide uh, policy i think to commit genocide and uh, and so even if they started pulling out those machetes and started um killing ukrainians randomly which basically they're doing, they're just doing it in a slightly different way. They're uh, not using, you know, just this week there was somebody who was, there was a group of people who were, um, you know, they they announced the suspicion and I still have a hard time with that because it just sounds weird to me. Um, But anyway, they, they announced the suspicion of a group of soldiers who, who shot in, in the, you know this story, Dave. We talked about it. Um, who shot up a car in Bucha as people were trying to escape? Um, so the difference there is a machete and a gun. You know, really, I think that's the only difference. But what they're looking for, and and that is something that Ukraine will prosecute. But what they're looking for is that further intent, that intent to commit genocide. And it's not going to be on that one individual case, even though I agree that that one individual case is genocide. It's there. I think that they're looking at a more a bigger picture systemic um, policy of genocide. Gina, Nancy, help me out here. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything to add, Prince, but you are making sense. I agree. Okay, so nice to know I'm not a blithering idiot, even though I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, let's go ahead to every child, and then we will try to um, go through very quickly, I think, um, before we end um, the forcible trans- tra- transferring of children of a group to another group. So go ahead, every child. Uh, there was, of course, Dr. Nick talked for several hours, there, but um, another part of what she had to say was uh, one, she, she said, she, she urged us all to be patient. She said, uh, we want to get this absolutely right. We don't want any mistakes to be made. And she said, they are actually codifying new laws or regulations to put in place before they begin. Um, taking 
more more deliberate actions uh, so that uh, so that uh, I think uh, this 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 isn't her words, but this is what I took it to mean. Uh, loopholes are being closed in advance uh, 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 because they corrections can't be made after charges are filed. Uh, and uh, and she said it takes time to get get the, these documents written and and put into force uh, so that they will ha so that they will be legally binding in this case. Go ahead, Gina. Just wanted to give a a, a note um, that the International Court of Justice announced back on August twenty second that. It will hold public hearings on the preliminary objections raised by the Russian Federation from Monday, uh, September 18th to Wednesday, the 27th um, at The Hague. And this is regarding Ukraine's allegations of genocide under the convention. And there will be 32 states intervening. You can see this on the International Court of Justice's website and the, uh, the case number that's in the other documents. It's not referenced here. But at any rate, I think that that's something to pay attention to. It will be interesting because this is where we're going to see some of the, the procedurals taking place. So I'm not sure if this will be live streamed or available afterwards. But again, that's going to be um, September 18th to 27th at The Hague. Um, at the, you know, the International Court of Justice and Russia will open with its oral arguments on the 18th. Tuesday, we'll hear Ukraine's arguments and then intervening states include Germany, Australia, Austria, Slovakia, Czechia, uh, Belgium, Croatia, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Ireland, Luxembourg and Sweden, Bulgaria, Canada and the Netherlands and several other states, um, including the United Kingdom. Um, but at any rate, again, on the ICJ's website and worth, worth looking over and keeping an eye on. And related to that, there is a, a journalist who has regularly been sitting in on those cases who kind of provides a moment by moment um, running commentary in her Twitter feed, which is very fascinating, can also be quite hilarious at times with her stray comments. Um, and then she writes some very compelling articles after the fact. And uh, if, if you guys are interested in kind of the, the, the simpler to understand play-by-play, -play, I would encourage you to follow Molly Quell, M-O-L-L-Y-Q-U-E-L-L. -L -L. Uh, she's got a vicious sense of humor and she follows these proceedings and provides running updates that are are very informative. Go ahead, Gina. That's excellent. Thank you. And then also I did check and these hearings will be streamed. So they'll be live and then available later on demand. And they'll be in English and French. So you can view them on the court's website or on UN Web TV. So again, you can I, I think it would be interesting to watch them and then monitor Molly's commentary. That would probably be very interesting if you have the time to do it. Yep, agreed. That's what I'm aiming for. I won't. Uh, I won't be able to see most of them due to work commitments, but I'll be uh, um, trying to catch them in follow up after after the streaming events. Very good. And Dave, you're right. I'm sorry. Thank you for sending me a message. I I neglected to answer the main part of your question there. 
um, was, uh, does this have to be a unanimous decision to declare genocide? Can Russia, um, can Russia being in the UN block it as far as uh, the, the uh, difference between the Security Council and the General Council? And you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, in the in the National Security Council, they do have the ability to veto. They, they that is one of the things that they have. Um, and um, at General Assembly, they cannot. If it's a General Assembly, you know, vote or decision, um, they they have no power to change that. Um, the the other thing I just don't know is. I don't know if this is something that has to be voted on by by the um, by the United Nations. This may just be something that uh, you know they've put this commission together to investigate this, and if they find enough evidence and they find enough proof for all of this, um, it may just be something that they say in a report um, that that triggers something. I honestly do not know, and I apologize for that. Um, that is something that Dr. Nick probably will know, but it is late in the evening for Dr. Nick, and uh, I, I assume she has gone to bed. Um, so I, I don't know if Nancy or Gina has an answer to that, but I think that that is what I have. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> I know it's amazing. Totally shocked. Heather does not know everything. She's fired. No, 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 no. Heather, wait, never mind. I don't even want to say that as a joke. Does, um, does that mean I can go to bed before 3 a.m.? <laughs> no. Um, all joking aside, I, I know that I am definitely not an international law expert, but I, I have had concerns of a scenario where the United Nations General Assembly and the individual states individual nations try and basically um, hide behind each other as far as who is the responsible party that needs to act first when the real answer is that they're all responsible parties that need to act first. Um, I suspect that if the General Assembly said, we think this is genocide. There's a responsibility to intervene. Okay, UN Security Council, what say you? Well, of course, Russia would veto any actions, which means that an assembly of countries would need to intervene outside of the Security Council. And that is where we get into some of the measures that are already being taken, such as um, providing additional weapons support, tightening sanctions. And, you know, that's one of the places where I have been frustrated because clearly the existing sanctions continue to be very porous and could certainly be tightened further. And I, I have seen gradual action toward that and a little bit more tightening on some sanctions evasion um, but but nowhere near the level that is appropriate, particularly if you're going to focus on those controls versus a military response, you know, versus um, providing um, the additional military requests and meeting the requests more quickly um, that Ukraine has asked for. 
And I know there's a lot of complexity behind scenes on that too, but um, we sh still should be bringing everything to bear um, as individual states, individual nations, and not, not strictly waiting for um, the UN to make a final move. Yeah, I did um, just have a question here. I have to look through my DMs because I got more than I expected. And Twitter doesn't alert me the way that it just frustrates me sometimes. Um, and when you're juggling five different things, sometimes you forget to check one. Um, but why can't NATO stop it now as the standing crimes are being investigated? I don't get why we need any new laws to stop it now. And uh, I'd like to say I don't know, but I think the reality is, unfortunately, NATO is a defensive, not an offensive organization. If NATO, if, if a country attacks you, NATO will come and help to defend you. Um, and and that is that is what's happening here. Um, Russia is attacking Ukraine, and if Ukraine was a NATO member they could ask for that Article 5 and invite NATO in to help to defend themselves. Here, in this case, Russia is the aggressor, NATO, uh, Ukraine is the defender, and so that is, that is why it would work that way. Um, NATO is a defensive organization, and since um, Ukraine is not a member of that organization at this point, NATO's not going to act. And it's unfortunate it's sad, it's frustrating, it is something that can make you very angry, but I think that that is the logical and uh, level response to that. Anybody disagree with me or have more to add? I have brought silence to the room. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, so we are really close to, um... oh, go ahead, every child. Um. You know, even though I was watching things as closely as I could in 2014, uh, I didn't necessarily understood understand all I was seeing. But uh, I've been hearing a little bit of information to fill in what I what I witnessed and didn't recognize. And um, uh, wasn't the uh, wasn't the original. Uh, protest in the streets in 2014 uh, 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 rallying to to require uh, the Ukrainian government to uh, 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 align themselves with the, either either Europe or NATO and I don't remember which I heard them say but uh, was wasn't that what was going on at that time yeah yeah the well not NATO the EU um, oh, the EU. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yanukovych had had uh, pledged to to um, I believe it was sign a document that showed their intention, or basically fill out an application to join the EU, and then he changed his mind and pulled out of that, and that is what started it. Is a very very simple explanation from mm -hmm. me as to what I I understand in just a very simple way. Not with going into more details, which I know have to come into it and have to play into it. And of course, with Yanukovych, the the Russian influence um, was very clear. And so, so the you know the decision, I'm sure, 
uh, was made with a ton of Russian influence. And uh, if I didn't fall asleep, and not not because it's boring, but because it's really late and I'm really tired, if I didn't fall asleep um, listening to to um, the Russo-Ukrainian War um, by Serhii Plohi, I would understand that a little bit better because he goes through and explains it very well. But um, I keep falling asleep because I'm just so tired and it's the only time I have to listen to the book. So I keep rewinding until I remember for sure I heard a part. And uh, yeah, so anyway, you get you get the idea. Anyway, ladies, it is like 10 o'clock and we've gotten through one more point, um, which which is fine. Uh, you know, we can we can quickly um, either go over. I know it's late for you guys, so you may be turning into pumpkins and um, and, and that is perfectly OK. Uh, we can we can go through this last point and then move on next week. Um, to the duty to prevent a little bit more in detail or if there's another topic that we want to go through um, but uh, so I'm going to leave that up to you if you want to power through and see if we can get this last one done in about a half an hour or if you want to um, put it off and do it next week and doing it next week is perfectly fine with me because I think we could probably do both uh, next week as far as is this last um the last item as far as the forcibly transferring children from a group to another and the duty to prevent. Gina, go ahead. Yeah, I kind of would almost like to see the, the children treated separately next week because I don't want to shortchange the, the, you know, the horror of that. And, and, and I really would like to, you know, see if maybe between now and then there might be another expert we'd want to bring on board um, you know, maybe that's something we can think about this week. I don't know if there is someone who would, you know, a specialist here that would be appropriate, but I definitely think that particular topic kind of deserves a little bit more time rather than just kind of trying to power through it right now. But, that, you know, defer to you, but that, those are just my thoughts on that. I'd like to really expand on that a bit. I'm perfectly yeah, with that. I agree too. Yeah, that it, it is a very deep subject and it's very complicated and there's so much and I, have someone in mind, but I have no idea if I could even get them, get in contact with them or get them to come on at five o'clock in the morning. Um, maybe if we can find somebody who's not in Kiev, but, uh, or in Ukraine, but uh, uh, either way, I, it is something that I think that we need to, um, I, I agree. I, I like the idea of, of continuing on um, next week with the uh, deported, the children that are being deported and it'll give me a little bit of time also to uh, brush up on some of the details of that because I have done quite a bit of reading about that. And uh, there, there's one just really quick. I'm just going to say this is there's one very interesting aspect that, that that I discovered the other day. Well, a week or so ago um, about uh, the number of children that are ending up in orphanages in Russia because and they're totally hidden from statistics because they're taken to orphanages for a break from their parents. And so, you know, so if they're already struggling with the amount of orphans in orphanages, um, which are, you know, upwards of 20,000 parental children in orphanages, um, you know, they're taking in more children. And uh, there's a couple of other aspects that, that apply here that I'd like to have some time to research too. So I am totally okay with this idea. And uh, yeah, so um, I I do see that uh, Will, the man from the land down under, 
um, is here with us, and it is, oh boy, what time is it? It is one o'clock in the afternoon for Will, so he should be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and prepared to talk for the entire time. Anyway, uh, it looks like Nancy dropped down as co-host, um, but she has left a ghost behind. So we are, I think, uh, I think we are going to uh, go ahead and, and wrap up, Gina. Thank you so much for your time and your effort and interest in this. And just on a personal note, when you mentioned the doctoral degree that you're looking into, I think I squealed a little bit because that made me really happy and excited. I I uh, I think that is um, got to tell me more about it privately. That's basically what I'm going to say, because I, I think it would be um, fabulous. And it's um, obviously becoming something that's a passion for you. And it's a, uh, it's it's a very difficult thing that I think people have a hard time specializing in because it's it's one of those those difficult subjects that people don't always like to talk about. But we need experts, and um, even though you are very humble, I do consider you uh, because of all of the research and all of the communication with with um, with es- experts in the field. I, I do consider you a very, very knowledgeable source, um, and I will call you an expert, but uh, an amateur expert or a non-credentialed expert or a expert just because of your job and you've done a lot of research, and I appreciate that very much from you, and I appreciate you joining us on Friday nights um, and, and spending this time talking with us, so thank you so much, Gina. Oh, thank you. It is, it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I learned so much, and I just am you know, grateful that we can keep this conversation going. It's an important conversation. And I uh, thank you guys for the heroic work that you do at Maria Report, hours and hours of just keeping the conversation going and, and being the light in the darkness. That's, that's hugely important. And I think that Lada just said it so beautifully tonight, you know, it, it also promotes just that at that micro level, kindness, respect, those are the things that at, at that very micro level will prevent future genocides as well as truth and education. So, so thank you and all of Maria report for everything that you do. And Slava Ukraini. Slava. And Nancy, I just need to take a moment also to thank you because you have, uh, you sort of spurred this idea. It was, Hey, we're co-hosting tonight. Should we talk about this? And I said, yeah, let's talk about this. And uh, what we're on our fourth session this week. Um, and uh, I think we've got a few more sessions in us. And uh, I, I really appreciate this because this has become just an amazing time. I know it's a difficult time and and uh, sometimes uh, people tune out, which, you know, is hard, but I also understand. Um, and uh, so it just just thank you for the idea and for inspiring us to to do this on a weekly basis for a little while. It will not go on forever, um, but uh, it may be maybe we'll do it on an occasional basis after we've covered some of the groundwork. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you, Prince. I um, really appreciated us brainstorming about it. And I have learned so much through the process and realized how much more I still have to learn, but at least I am now better able to explain circumstances to people and to provide much more direct answers um, to folks who haven't been paying attention or wonder, well, 
can't we just find a compromise? And this has really given me um, the tools in my toolkit to explain why Ukraine cannot compromise with genocide and to explain what it is and what our obligations are to support them. And, uh, and I would not have been able to do that effectively had we not said, hey, let's dig into this more and understand this report and talk about the bigger topic. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to have had that opportunity. And I know that it's information that will serve our community well as we start to get even the small villages that have been liberated as we start to hear information from them. Um, we're going to hear gut-wrenching stories yet again. And this gives us the framework to put resolute action into place. Um, and I don't think I would have been ready to do that um, without us having done this deep dive. So I thank everybody for coming along with us in this journey and there's more to come. Absolutely. Thank you guys and uh, have a good evening. And I know that uh, Jean and Nancy and I will talk uh, between now and then, but um, otherwise we will be back with uh, Understanding Genocide in Ukraine uh, next Friday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. 5 a.m. Kiev, and uh, again, just real quick, thank you. Even though I, I think she's probably maybe taking a nap. Uh, really thank Lada for coming up tonight and joining us and sharing her her vast knowledge with us, and for getting up at 5 a.m. and and on a Saturday and and spending time with us. Uh, so I really appreciate that.